uh, here we go. So, come with me on a journey into the theater of the mind. It's 11.15 a.m. on a Tuesday. You're doing multiplication tables at a glazed faux wood plastic desk with your name on it in colorful construction paper. The intercom crackles on with the voice of the nice lady from the front office announcing your class 4C can now go to the library. You clutch your little plastic coin purse with the human torch on it as you begin foaming at the mouth. After feverishly walking in single-file line through the carpeted hallways of Oak Ridge Elementary, you arrive to see the familiar octagonal tables of the library vanished to a vast open floor lined with cardboard obelisks. Mixed among the familiar faces and logos of Animorphs, Judy Bloom, and Goosebumps is the drier, duller literature for adults like the Boxcar Children, American Girl, and The Giver. Tightly wound within poster tubes, the Spice Girls recline on a Union Jack-styled couch, a red Lamborghini glistens into a black abyss, and Shaquille O'Neal peers at you over a copy of Catcher in the Rye. The cover of Jack London's novel White Fang conceals the motherlode of points for the accelerated reader competition. Erasers, toppers, spinners, flashers, flippers, and clippers, in all colors and sizes, tempt the senses like inedible ten-cent candy. A single girthy pen can hold seven different colors of ink. There's a tasseled bookmarker for each Hogwarts house, your Hogwarts house. Along the floor lie more esoteric texts, eyewitness books, ancient Egypt, a biography of Mary Lou Retton, 1001 plus cheat codes for Game Boy Advance, the ultimate paper airplane builder's guide, an early work by Shel Silverstein, a cumulative decade of Calvin and Hobbes strips, and Guinness World Records 2003. In only 30 short minutes, you'll have to coordinate the most optimal way to stretch your hard-earned fortune of $27. Before you lies a series of impossible decisions, but just today, you have the money and you're doing the shopping, with no parents to tell you to put anything back. Unlike the library shelves behind these kiosks, everything here is yours to keep. It's terrifying, exhilarating, impossible, and perfect. Welcome to the book fair. And then we can start. Now we can just start. Yeah, okay. dang, that was really that good. Was, that was phenomenal. Do you think I missed any like little items that you might see there? Because I tried to like think of like everything that they had there. I think I mean I think you covered everything that's at a book fair. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, Although I, I don't remember the holders being made of cardboard. I remember most of them being those like big metal rolling cases that uh, would then like clamshell together again. Oh, you're right. They did have. Okay, well. I, I just uh, imagineered it. No, dude, it was crazy. It was crazy evocative. It was great. 
Thank yep. you. I wrote it in like half an hour today. Um, so, well, what's up? This is uh, our working title is On Air Book Fair. God, okay, here, we, here this is how it starts. Uh, it's On Air Book Fair. It's uh, a podcast where grown men talk about books that they read when they were 12 uh, and yeah. other such things. Uh, well, we're going to see if it goes a little longer and we do more series. But right now, uh, we're focusing specifically on the uh, Children of the Red King series, the Charlie Bone books. Uh, so... Let, uh, let's see. Uh, my name is Jay. Uh, I'm hosting, I suppose, and I'm joined by my two guests. Introduce yourselves. Uh, don't talk over each other. Miles first. Uh, yeah, I'm Miles. Uh, I've known Jay for a long time. Actually, uh, not quite as long as I've known these books, though. I'm the only one of the three of us right now who has read more than half of the first book. Um, and I absolutely loved them. I thought they were great. And revisiting them is an interesting experience. It was This project was fully your idea, right? Because you were the only one that had re read these. I mean, to a certain degree, but like as far as, you know, three grown men revisiting books from their childhood for a podcast is anyone's original idea. Like at this point, it's just like, I looked the around only thing for that it. Makes a just my idea is I was the one who sent the message out, like, "Hey, what if we did this?" I did a cursory Google search. There's no like Scholastic Book Fair themed podcasts like this okay. currently. So we're also joined by Dan, or you can have any alias you want on the internet. You decide. I think there are enough Daniels in the world for me to keep my true identity hidden. So yep, I'm Daniel. I'm a friend of Miles from college. I I've met Jamie a few times. I haven't known these books for nearly as long as Miles, and I, I missed out on this series because I was reading a lot of Redwall at the time. So I'm having a lot of fun jumping back into this. That is a series that, if this goes on, part of me wants to do because I never read them, but I also know that it's a long series from when you and I talked about it a little bit. It is so, so. very long, but I, I love it. Yeah. So um, the Charlie Bone series is... Uh, yeah book about a young man who gets sent after he discovers some strange powers uh, by his weird cryptic family to a boarding school for kids with uh, magical powers. Uh, it's really often the, in much the same way that like Digimon is considered a knockoff of Pokemon, even though they're like vastly different in a million ways. Um, this is uh, considered sort of in the wake a capitalization on the like rush of you know, early mid two thousands, uh, magic school, uh, and is and is unfairly seen as a ripoff by the progenitor of this subgenre, uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. <laughs> but unlike that, uh, book to screen juggernaut and cultural phenomenon with kids, it's entirely unique in its own regard. Um, so, uh, somebody else talk. Well, one of the questions I wanted yeah. to have was about. Your experience, just to start off, so you get to know us a little better. I talk too much. Um, the experience you had growing up reading and your relationship to reading. Because I guess by the nature of the fact that we're doing this, we were all probably really book-heavy kids. Most definitely. Um, I mean, my mom is a librarian, so I grew up surrounded by books in a lot of literal ways, too. Um, I remember I'd have to, like, if she had an in-service day, I'd go in and I'd hang out in the library. That was when she was working at the high school. Later on, she moved to the middle school. But um, 
I remember I'd go in and I'd just see all of these books and I wouldn't I wouldn't be interested in the vast majority of them because, you know, they were just boring ass like nonfiction books in the high school. The exception, of course, being animal books and encyclopedias, which I was all about. Um and occasionally she would have a stack of the new like Newberry award winning books. Uh she was also working at the time uh reviewing books for a little bit there um for other educators and one of those books I think was Charlie Bone uh because I'm pretty sure that's how I got my first copy of Midnight for Charlie Bone uh got it in March of 2003 when it came out in the US um so this and, might have been yeah, at exactly I, the same time I set my little uh anyway yeah I I I ran through that book a lot. Um, I was already reading a bunch of other books, too. I think I got that book and House of the Scorpion around the same time, which is another book I absolutely love and have never been able to convince anyone else to read, just like Charlie Bone. Um, but now at least Charlie Bone is changing in that regard. <laughs> Dan, how about you? Uh, right. you? Do you read books in your past? Oh, books? What Man, what are books? Um, yes. So... Essentially, as soon as I could read chapter books, real books, I think I was in second or third grade when my, my dad handed me a copy of The Hobbit and told me, you'll like this. That's, that's like the Velvet um, Underground for reading kids. Really? You know, you give a second grader The Hobbit and they're just, if you were at that show, you were doing reading forever. My mom gave a second grader The Giver and it was a good decision. Sorry, continue, Dan. Today. We're stomping right. over. That, that's, that book in i'm not exaggerating when i say that book is probably the most influential one on my on who i am as a person it's why i write stories now it's why i write fantasy it's why i play DD. so <laughs> it set the ball rolling but yeah from there i read just about anything i could get my hands on uh i'm one of too many brothers and my brother nick and i had bunk beds we would trade books back and forth between our beds in the middle of the night when we should have been asleep yeah, this was uh, also around the time when we were not allowed to play video games or watch TV during the weekdays. So we read, and then we read some more. Then we went outside and we read there. Then we went inside, we read there too. So books all over the place. Wow, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, you guys didn't have Game Boy? Because that's me and my brother in oh, our bunk did. beds. Um, <laughs> so it's okay to have, like, big pauses because they do truncate silence. So if your brain totally stops, you're just allowed to just hold hold that moment. Oh, good. Thanks. Dan, I was uh, are you describing. Your... Oops, sorry. No, uh, I was sort of an early reader um, in like first grade. I was starting to like touch on chapter books and would always, you know, not stumble too hard when you had to read in front of the class. So that's why they thought I was like a smart kid and put me in like the gifted programs, uh, which as anybody else in the gifted programs knows is a uh, debilitating uh, mental curse that the education system does to people. Uh, to keep them from being too smart. When they were adults, they might question things. Anyway, um, I would also... I remember reading a lot through middle school and high school because all the classes and everything was very boring. And if you weren't paying attention by reading, the teachers would give you a pass for it. So I would just be, you know, finding something to read. And at some point I had a Kindle uh, in high school, which was an electronic, which you really shouldn't have at the time. Not anymore. They like have, Kids have, like, full phones and computers constantly in school. Mm -hmm. Um but 
they would be like, what do you got there? Is that your phone? I'd be like, uh, I'm reading. And they're like, okay, well, just, you know, your, your test grades are fine. So what, what am I going to do? Make a fuss about it. Um, yeah. I remember and now, and now, so do we, do we read now as adults? I would say no. This has been refreshing for me, even just to get to something at like a 12 or 13 year old reading level. Uh, this is just reading anything for me anymore, uh, which is wonderful and refreshing. And I get to, the weather's warming up. I get to sit outside. Uh, I went to the library. I went to my public library to get this first uh, book in the series. Um, it was beautiful. I walked around there a little bit. It was very quiet and kind of empty, which I guess libraries are supposed to be. They had the little alcove at the top of some stairs where there's some chairs and like a rack of Mad Magazines. And I just remembered being 12 and being like, wow, Mad Magazine. Um, I would always sit in that little alcove. Uh, anyway, uh, what about you two? Are you reading much as adults these days? And how are you reading this current book? I am definitely not reading as much as realistically I probably should as an adult. Um, I think the last two things I read before we started prepping for this, I had started to reread the Mass Effect books, which are still good, but like it is rereading. Um, and it's not and, high literature. Yeah, it's not. Um, and then I think the last thing I read before that was I I read through the first two books and only two books in the Kingkiller Chronicles every couple of years because it's an enjoyable time. And, you know, you get that like nice little kick sometimes of when you're reading something and it impacts the way you like interact with the world a little bit. And I always feel like reading Kingkiller does make me a little bit better at conveying my own thoughts and feelings it sort of helps me externalize a lot of my thoughts which can be pretty difficult also jamie you talking about uh the location in the library i know exactly where you are and where you were i can put myself right in one of those chairs because there's the little meeting rooms right beside it yeah and uh i used to go there to study and um at a couple of points Back when I was in Relay for Life, we'd have team meetings there, too. See, I got a library card again. I didn't have one for the longest time, and now I'm just like, oh, I want to go there all the time. And I and it's been uh, since last Monday that I got this book, so it's probably going to be overdue because I always forget that that's something you have to do <laughs> is give it back. Um, Dan, uh, Dan, do you read much these days? Man, so I'm a bad English major because I want to. I, I should. I don't read nearly as much as I used to. I have lately been sporadically reading um, Brandon Sanderson's uh, Way of Kings books, and my, my girlfriend and my brother each bought me the next book in that series, and they're massive. I used to be able to breeze through several hundred pages in a single week. I can't do that anymore, and I miss <laughs> that ability. Um, but I do still read. I can like, like you said, it's refreshing to have this like kids book to read yeah i've found if i'm struggling to read more serious things i just fall back on a kid's book or a graphic novel and like i feel much better about life um <laughs> the only other thing I, i've so continue sorry um i i got this one from my local library which is right now closed for closed due to the pandemic they will only let you pick up books at the window at the door and they told me um, I have too many fines on the books that I decided I wanted to keep a little longer. So I can't get the second book until I pay that fine. I have to remember that. <laughs> I, I also I think just remembered, 
I've been discounting some of the stuff I've been reading because I have been forgetting that I've been reading stuff. Um, I recently uh, listened to the audiobook for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the mm-hmm. Galaxy, um, the one narrated by Douglas Adams. And that was just so much fun. What's his I voice was... like? Has he got a good voice? Uh, yes. Uh, and he does the best reading of those books of anyone I've run into because he he wrote them. He he knows the intonation that he was thinking when he wrote it. Um, but yeah, that was a really really good pick me up on a f- during a pretty frustrating week. Uh, and I just remembered, oh yeah, there's all of these books on my shelf that I have been reading. There's just like the graphic novel for Animorphs book one and. Uh, I have been getting the Adventure Zone graphic novels and the Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess manga. I've just, I guess I just didn't, I did that thing that, uh, you know, our teachers always did in middle school where it was like, that's not really reading. I was going to say, I think I'm going to plant this, plant this stake in the ground right now for this podcast is that comic books don't count. Get that baby shit out of here. Oh, what Superman going to teach you about the human condition? Fuck off. Course, I will say comic books probably pro- probably don't quite count as reading, but it is engaging with engaging with media outside of like TV and video games, which is mm-hmm. few and far between enough in my life as it is. Yeah, yeah. I I'm gonna throw my two cents in the ring. And say I think graphic novels totally count, and I know I, I'm being, I, I, that was all yeah. facetious. <laughs> Oh, okay. I couldn't you, you should see the fucking. You should see the collection of comics I have. I'm, I thought so. There I was also so. a couple of years. I've been a huge uh like graphic novels as literature snob about it. Like I've got the really artsy crap. Oh, nice. <laughs> I will. I will get and grab like any kid graphic novel. I don't care. Dan, that actually reminds me. The first time I ever read The Hobbit, it was in my mom's office in the high school library because she got the graphic novel of The Hobbit in a new like group of books and it was right around when the first uh or when fellowship of the ring the live action movie came out i was not Mm -hmm. alive when the rankin bass movies came out um neither was i I was gonna say that was my first exposure to the hobbit was the 77 rankin bass movie which is why i have brain damage (laughs) (laughs) fun fact the copy of the hobbit that my dad thrust upon my tiny eight-year-old self was in fact the novelization the copy printed for the release of that movie so it had pictures all the pictures were uh from that movie oh was it, it like so in the middle was, of the book and like thick glossy paper no i mean it was like like you would have picture book pictures oh, as man. you go along in an ordinary book this is what you'd see as you go through it had it told the story on one side and you'd have pictures on the other so my first exposure to the hobbit my brain was already clued into all the Rankin Bass creations, and it took a lot of unlearning to realize, wait, <laughs> that's not how everybody looks in Tolkien's mind. No. You can literally, you don't need, one of the questions I was going to ask as we go through uh, the Charlie Bone series is like, how do you visualize the text in your head? And for instance, like, how how do you see people? But like, I think an easy way to phrase, how would you see uh, these characters? is like, who would you cast for them? Or, like, what mm-hmm. other uh, characters do you think, like, are visually comparable? Like, so who do you picture in your head as they go about it? I would always, like, pick different characters from uh, visual media to, like, sort of envision 
uh, characters and books. But, if, you know, mm-hmm. for the Rankin and Bass, like, uh, movie adaptation print of The Hobbit, like, you got your pictures right there. You can just see them. See, anyway. My problem with the who would you cast thing for this, um, for Charlie Bone specifically, just to bring it back over to Charlie Bone for a second, um, my problem with it is when I started reading these books, I was like seven or eight. So it was just like, who do I picture in this role? Well, this character kind of is getting described like this person I know. So it's not helpful for me to list those off on the podcast. Yeah. Unless, you know, I want to dox them for all, what, three listeners we might get. Yeah. (laughs) Uncle Patton is played by uh, Uncle Turnbuckle, who I see on the street corner at the Walgreens yelling at folks. Um, So my problem with this is that like i don't know a lot of actors so essentially uh i i posed this question to you guys early in reading this and then as i was reading it i'm just like oh no all i got is the stranger things kids shit <laughs> which stranger things kid goes where uh dan you brought up oh i need to look up his name but the the oh. kid who plays will perry in the uh dark his dark materials, materials show yeah. uh playing charlie bone i think would be a really good poll Thanks. I forget his name, too. Sorry if he ends up listening to this. Uh, yeah. sure. If I'm he sure. ends up listening to this, I <laughs> would be extremely surprised. Let's fucking talk Amir about the book. Yes. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, so he's played by Amir Wilson. Yes. Uh, okay. But yeah, so Charlie Bone. Midnight for Charlie Bone. First book in the series. Um, and it starts with a nice little prologue telling us all about this guy named the Red King. And when I say all about, I mean, they basically just told us that he was a magical African king who was called the Red King because he had a red cloak on and no one bothered to ask his name, I guess. Uh, He came up to England or the North at some point 900 years ago. Uh, He had three flame-colored leopards with him that we're not supposed to forget at all. Definitely don't forget the cats. Oh, don't. Um, Don't forget the cats. And he had 10 kids and then died. Five of his kids were dicks and five were chill. Uh, and they all had some portion of his magic powers. Uh, Beca- or maybe he didn't die. He disappeared into the woods 900 years ago. Um, because the prologue and, was so yeah. like frank and literal and you told me to focus on it, I didn't do that thing like any book or movie where there's like a little poem or quotes or a little thing at the beginning that like foretells something and I immediately forget it. So it's only after I like go back or watch something a second time that like some cryptic intro, I'm just like, oh, I've totally forgot that that was even there. That stuff normally just yeah. falls right off of me. Yeah, uh, but Charlie Bone is one of the Red King's descendants as are a couple of characters in the books. The one thing I am really thankful for is that this book doesn't just sideline the characters that aren't you know magic people Mm -hmm. it's just like hey this person's just like a normal ass person but he's got a dog and he's a good boy jesus Uh, christ benjamin 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 brown i benjamin brown is charlie bone's best friend and i do mean that he is the best friend that charlie bone will ever have because fucking first chapter charlie's just like huh hey no benjamin shut up this newspaper that's stuck to my foot i hear voices coming from the picture of it and benjamin's just like what kind of voices what are they saying not like (laughs) all right rude i was talking about my birthday coming up in a couple of days thanks bud i do like how he is like so along for the ride of it there were all of like really the, this like first chunk of the book before Charlie goes off to the uh, mysterious Bloors Academy. Uh, Benjamin's just like, oh yeah, whatever. You got like a bomb or something that an old lady gave you. I'll just put it in my basement. 
<laughs> yeah. I um, love the fact that he just casually references she might be a terrorist. Anyway. I think yeah, I, especially I, since... Uh, yeah. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, we, yeah, we are. Uh, the, I do want to say, because of the prologue, I, I want to say, reading through now, the fact that this story kind of is all about, you know, the mostly white depicted and described descendants of a magical black man, not great. Not a great way to restart revisiting this beloved series. Well, beloved for me anyway. But yeah. on this reread, I was specifically trying not to consider that the characters were white unless they were explicitly said to be. And so far in these 11 chapters, the only two characters that are explicitly stated to be white, or no, only three characters that are explicitly stated to be white are uh, Billy Raven, who's a kid with albinism, so... <laughs> Um, Benjamin Brown, Charlie's best friend, and Charlie's aunt Venetia. Presumably also then his other great aunts are. But maybe not. This, uh, yeah, I, there was definitely, we were, had a long conversation about like, what, okay, what is the, what is the racial politics of Charlie Bone? It takes place in England, uh, which makes everything like vaguely Dickensian in a similar way that, uh, certain other magic boy school uh, sort of always is like if you ever go back to the first movie it's just like all like old melting wart people like in burlap rags like it's a like it's absolutely <laughs> Oliver Twist style and yeah, in yeah. this they like describe street lamps and cobblestones in a way that I'm just like when does this take place so <laughs> from what I can tell this is set in a uh, like mod modestly sized village in Wales mm -hmm. oh um, I didn't think it was Welsh I mean, it might, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it, it might not be set in Wales. I was assuming it was set in Wales largely because uh, Jenny Nemo, the author, her other big series is also set in Wales because she is Welsh and has a lot of pride in being Welsh because the English have done some fucked up shit to the Welsh. Oh, yeah. Um, On our Book for podcast uh, supports Welsh sovereignty. Yeah. yeah. And Cornish sovereignty. And Scottish. Yes. Pretty and much all, all of you are good. Yeah. I think they should all just rise up and take over England. I mean, they outnumber them mm -hmm. altogether. England is so fucking cursed. Um, it is. Uh, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, so with the, with the, with the, yeah. these, these are like the long descent. These are the long descendants of an African king who have been living in England for generations and generations. So yes. they're uh, mixed race to any greater or lesser extent. Who knows how like broad and long this family, you know, stretches but when they described uh, uncle Patton as like a very dark man as a kid i think i would think that i'm just like oh it's a white guy who just looks very tired and wears cloaks and a big hat that makes him sh literally shadowy and nowadays i'm reading that and i'm just like oh idris elba that's it maybe um yeah i i was thinking about that this read through too um especially since later on uh charlie does have that sort of mental note of like oh yeah my uncle who's really tall and dark he's just showing up with me to this person's place of business late at night i i guess i understand a little bit why she'd be nervous it's like oh yeah that does kind of sound from what i have been told not lived experience um of kind of that like mental arithmetic that a lot of especially black children kind of have to make and like steadily discover um because charlie analysis yeah because 
Charlie is 10 and he thinks like a 10 year old a lot of the time. And I think that's a strength of the writing is I can tell that Charlie is 10 and has the brain of a 10 year old. Yep. Um, Kid logic uh, is on full display. Mm -hmm. So the, the critical starting spark of this, he, Charlie Bone is a young man who lives at nine, whatever street for some reason, like children's books always like to focus on addresses of where your house is. I guess that's to get kids to think of you. Yeah, that's one of the first things you learn is like how to say your address and phone number. So when you get uh, rescued from a basement by the police, you just tell them that and they take you home. Uh, it was it's <laughs> it's that like yeah. it's our generation's childhood like uh, abduction terror, I think. But um, yeah. he the sparking the wow, there's a word for this the initiating and the instantiating event. Yes, both of those. Um, yeah. is that Charlie? Uh, realize that like he can hear people talking in pictures like whenever the picture was taken whatever anyone was saying like around the time the picture was taken he like hears it and his spooky grandmothers are his one grandmother and his like great aunts and stuff are just like oh he has the gift we must bring the Bene Gesserit witch to come and give him the test to see if he is Kwisatz Haderach <laughs> yeah uh yeah his his uh paternal grandmother grandma bone and her sisters lucretia venetia and eustacia i think secretia like secrete that would have <laughs> been a, that would have been a good one uh, yeah but they they give him stuff uh, they give him tests to see if he is endowed they they, um, they arrange some toys in front of him and see which one he picks to tell if you're the <laughs> avatar yeah i got i got um, a bunch of these that. i can go all day <laughs> important note about charlie's family he lives with his mom two grand two grandmothers and his great uncle Patton. uh his mom is great and i'm gonna talk a little bit about his mom at some point um but also like they really start to get into some stuff because whenever his aunts are coming he fucking hates his aunts his aunts are creepy and weird but his mom just sits him down and is like hey you have to do this you have to you have to take their test because we're poor and they're the ones who own the house. Yeah, they you only need to do. You need to do this, or we're going to be homeless, Charlie. So go you're, in there you're... and put up with your aunts for a bit. Your father's side of the family is all witches, and they give us a stipend because th that's. <laughs> so they have. So they have a lot of. That was a. That was an interesting thing. It's just like, oh, they have financial power over your family, which is mm -hmm. that's pressure. It yeah. super is, kid, and. It's it's very strange. Um, do y'all have uh, like wealthy relatives? Some, Cause, yeah, because yeah. I have I I specifically I have a I have a grandfather and a step grandma who are very wealthy, and we don't talk to them anymore because they're on my dad's side. So that's a whole other thing. But I remember it was always like, no, you make extra care around them because like they're they're important or they're whatever we weren't getting any of the money or anything from them but it was important to really work to maintain that relationship and like there was a definite huge power imbalance that wasn't there with my other grandparents i just um, posted to the chat i thought about who i would fantasy cast for the ants at least two of them is uh the the exact characters of Ant Spiker and Sponge <laughs> from James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> just, just the, just the spookiest looking old broads. Sponge and Spiker. You, you are right on with them. Um, Evil Aunts. That's like it's a classic. 
it really is. But it's like, I, yeah, it, yeah, you just it's it's one of those things. I know, especially uh, one of my friends has a an obscenely wealthy family, and I do like it's it's genuinely sickening. His parents showed up for his first day of college and paid for all four years in one lump sum right away. Yeah, what? It, but damn, what with a briefcase of gold? I mean, might as well be. But he he at one point taught. I mean, problems are problems, but like, uh, but he was like, yeah, no, because you know, other parts of my family are really rich, so you really have to you have to like fake fake it through a lot of stuff because everyone's got like a certain degree of power, and you know, you have to worry about your place in the inheritance. It's like. Man, I am so glad I don't need to worry about my inheritance with that grandpa because he doesn't give a shit about me. Like, I know he does not care if I live or die. I don't think I will know if he dies. Maybe he pulls like a sweet bit, though, like in uh, that movie Knives Out, where he's just like, oh, this, this family fucking sucks. But that grandson of mine, Miles, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He gets all the money. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure my last interaction with him was making him look stupid uh, <laughs> at my great grandma's. Uh, at my great grandma's birthday party when I was 12 and he kept insisting no just blow up the balloons they'll st they'll they'll float no we don't have helium they're not gonna float oh so me God. and my brothers just rubbed them all on my head and stuck them to the ceiling with static electricity <laughs> and he came down see I told you they'd float and he taps one and it falls to the floor and all the rest fall too and I just stand there <laughs> looking at him yeah, I told you. That is a beautiful moment, though. Maybe, maybe that's exactly <laughs> what it is, though. Where he's like, "I remember that," and not only did he come up with a with a brilliant solution to an impossible problem, but he uh, he did what nobody else could, which was humble me. He, he also at respect. one point tried to like make us have to address like Christmas letters and stuff to him, addressing them to Doctor Last Name. I'm not going to say my last name right now, but like Doctor Whatever, and we called his house the apple house because there were like apple trees around so he also listed it as like dr blank at apple house enterprises like fuck off off. that's pretentious, so pretentious. Holy shit. Huh. like he was my introduction to the idea that money doesn't make you uh, make you better than anybody <laughs> else which is a good lesson for anyone to learn and we should probably learn that as a society uh yeah yeah but Please. like yeah yeah i yeah I, I've, I mentioned to you guys before how i have some relatives who are also rather wealthy and yeah you're kind of told yeah don't don't pick a fight with them i know their politics sound um interesting but don't engage just just smile and nod because we want to stay on the good side and to their credit a lot of them are really really good good people we just stay away from certain topics <laughs> but it is real clear like when you know that life is life looks differently in their in their world, like, and that's one thing I I liked about the way the family structure is set up in Charlie Bone is it's told from a child's point of view, but you still get the the hints of this larger situation surrounding him, and like it's just it feels heavier even though you get it in these little you know not particularly wordy snippets about his life. The yeah, the mood I get from a lot of what Charlie Bone goes through in this first half of this first book is like being as a kid pulled around by bizarre familial expectations, but also institutions like Charlie Bone is institutionalized in the fact mm -hmm. that in the sense that he has no control over what he does, but like operates on uh, purely on these like traditions or expectations like 
from the family of like once he realizes he can and he accidentally spills the beans because he didn't want anyone to know that he had superpowers because unlike you know other protagonists that are similar and like yearning for a more magical world to live in charlie bone doesn't want anything to do with this he just wants yeah. to go to school and like be with his friends and be normal and he is reluctantly just like ah shit i got an x-man superpower i gotta go to the school now <laughs> they're and they're forcing him to jump through so many goddamn hoops stuff that he has no control over and they're just like pushing him into this with such force and i wonder if like the rest of the endowed kids like go through like this uh, sort of scrutiny will meet more endowed kids later in the book or if it's just like or if he is like the one son of like the super mega powerful warlock that his missing maybe dead dad is uh and like that's why all these people care so much specifically about him and his like relatively modest but interesting x-men power so I will say the we do learn more about like the other kids' relationships with their powers and with their family, and almost none of them are like Charlie's relationship with it. Uh, personally, not for, I don't believe it's for any chosen one reason. It's just every family is different, and it it is effectively highlighted in that. Um, but the familiar the familial expectations thing actually reminds me early on in the book. Uh, there's a moment where Charlie, like, Charlie is intuitive. He is an intuitive kid. And kids overall are more intuitive than adults give them credit for. Like, kids don't always get sarcasm, but they will get if you're being snarky with them and you're being, like, a dick. They can pick up the tone. Um, we'll get to yeah. it later, but there, towards the end of this section that we read, there was, like, a moment where some information comes in and Charlie figures it out in a way that I was, as the reader, as an adult reader, I'm just like, oh yeah, of course, this would be what this was leading to. But he figured it out quickly and concisely in a way that I swear to God, I like will watch an anime or something and something will be so heavily telegraphed, like the resolution of a mystery will be so obvious and then it'll come up and they'll be like, what? You're telling me that this is that? And that was this the whole time? And as the viewer, you're just like, have you been paying attention at all? Mm -hmm. But I'm glad Charlie yeah. was just immediately like, oh, this is that and that was this. I figured that out because he puts the fucking information together in the same way that like a 27 year old man podcasting about it also has the ability to. You mean he's not yeah. your stereotypical shonen protagonist who doesn't understand anything? Although I although I would love if these books had a tournament arc. That's all I would say. Listen, uh, I would love to see that too. But early on in the book, he he sees gr his grandma, his dad's mom come down the stairs and she's like, Charlie. Eustacia had one of her premonitions, and you are you finally gonna be a real U-beam? And he he said that she was standing there. I actually highlighted it. She looked somehow as though she were on the brink of fulfilling her destiny. And in a way she was, though at 65 you could be forgiven for thinking it was a bit late. Like oh my God. there's tons of there's tons of expectations placed on all of these family members, including her. Like she is an antagonist in these books, but like she Your clearly has her pride and her reputation wrapped up in mm -hmm. this lineage. And because the lineage is like, I guess, kind of floundering at this point, they're just like, oh, thank God he's got superpowers. We can save the family. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like, in all, in all essences, you know, she was the only hope because the ants, no kids. Patton, no kids. And just why is that? Yeah. yeah, and why is that? <laughs> but, but she, like she had one child before her husband died and that child did not have an endowment and oh he, charlie as the child is also child. like 
He's like an improper, an improperly bred little mutt of a boy. <laughs> oh, our prestigious brother, his father, went and boned down with a commoner who has no superpowers and no lineage. Well, the so they, they do specifically too. They do specifically talk about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. in his family, the men are always required to marry an endowed woman, but the women can marry whoever the fuck they want, which seems yep. strange, but yeah. it it highlights again we're going to jump back to Patton because Patton is so fucking gay-coded. Patton is enormously gay-coded. His uncle, who doesn't get along with his traditional family whatsoever, who spends most of his time locked up in his room, not talking to anybody, but will leave occasionally to put mysterious letters in the mailbox or yeah he's cruising for dick nighttime walks Uh, yeah and his superpower that's revealed later is that like he makes lights brighter near him to the extent that they sometimes explode Mm -hmm. yeah i yeah so Patton is so fucking gay coded um which reading it now makes me a little bit sad that you know they didn't actually get into that but also it was a scholastic book in 2002, 2003. Yeah. You take what I you can get. There you were limitations. By like, um, th- this was like, what, like a 30 year old Welsh woman writing this? Like, you take what you can get. Yeah. In, uh, I in, think in she 2001. Was, I think she was closer to 40 or 50. I think she's, she's like 60 or 70 now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And Patton's sisters harp on him all the time. Do your duty for once. Like, yeah. Why don't you go oh, knock up some magic X-Men lady? <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's just an interestingly like realistic way that they talk about their lineage and it, like the elitist tone they take about everything. No, it's like, eugenics. My my own experience, like um my my mom's side of the family is all from Lebanon and it was among the old people. It was whispered very loudly about that one one cousin um married a a, Mus- a muslim man from somewhere that is not lebanon and they would say of her child oh he has the wrong blood like, Woof. you're all from Woof. the same but bl- yeah yeah the we wrong blood that, that hurts that is yeah my, my yeah my mom translated that one for me when my aunt was going on a whole great aunt who we don't talk about anymore because she is not the nicest human being. But yeah, Parallels. that's who, that's who uh, Griselda reminded me of. I was like, oh, we're having this conversation, are we? Like, um, yeah. yeah. But much like Stink. these books go, like, love is love, and the dad was just like, oh, no, this is great. And it, it'll justify itself in time. Like, it's never that, like, it, it wouldn't be that, like, Charlie Bone, like, fulfills some grand duty for, like, these magic people, but just he was never in doubt. It is always like, no, he does secretly have the power blood. Uh, just a late bloomer or something, I guess. You know where, actually, it's, the way I'm phrasing this reminds me of Sky High, where, like, the the eugenics thing, like, would have had a more positive message if it's just like, yeah, you don't need the powers to, you know, be the hero. Uh, but then, over the course of that movie, the the kid gets the powers anyway so it's just like okay you succeeded because you did have eugenics powers honestly all i remember about sky high is that there was a kid who was the child of a villain and a hero and his name was warren peace (laughs) this fucking classic wow um that's amazing you know what here's a let me put a pin in this so that if we compare this book series to sky high at any other point i'm gonna have a little (laughs) sound effect for it 
which is just going to be some <laughs> awful line from that movie. Dreadful technique. You've confused rays with beams. D. I will say on the topic of Griselda, she is another character that I'm finding a lot more appreciation for this time around. Uh, specifically because later on, Charlie, Charlie proves to his aunts that he can do the thing because they trick him. They give him a bunch of pictures that are super loud. So he's just like sensory overload and starts yelling because the pictures are too loud. Which Young Charlie boy, we took a bunch oh. of pictures of car crashes for you. Would you like to see what the guts sound like? We got it from Red <laughs> Asphalt at the DMV. Look at these pictures, Charlie. Um, but so he is told like, hey, you have to go to this school that uh, endowed kids go to. It's also just an art school for 99% of the people that go to it. Um, yeah. I know this but, is so I know to, this is crass and juvenile, but I can't stop thinking about how much they talk about how endowed Charlie is. Oh, he's yeah, so endowed, just like, like his father. And I'm like, dude, I come know. on, fucking stop his dad, it. His dad was not endowed. His dad was not endowed. His dad was a pianist. He was a very good pianist. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're all adults. Yeah, but Charlie <laughs> has to start learning a musical instrument because. Apparently, that's the easiest thing to get a kid to do in an art school is an instrument. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, but there are the three schools inside it. Uh, art, drama, and music. And apparently, you know, putting a kid who barely plays the recorder in with a bunch of musical prodigies, that'll be easy. This book um, makes it seem like but, learning a musical instrument a kid is, is like relatively easy. And I'm like, fuck you. No, fuck you. Yeah. This is driving me goddamn crazy. Try to, like, they're, they're forcing you to learn how to play the piano in, like, a week. And then it's like, oh, and he was magically able to pick it up really quickly. And I'm like, oh, good for you. I, I did, I'm just, this is my eight years of piano lessons that drove me insane as a kid. Just, like, being real pissed off about, like, oh, well, good for you. You can learn scales, like, in a day from, you know, um, Piccolo Fibaracci or whatever his fucking name was. But, yeah, so, but Charlie starts to learn a lot of musical instruments, including the piano, which he does seem like really good at and should have been the one that he pursued in the actual schooling instead of like a flute or a clarinet or something, which didn't make any sense to me. But um, anyway, he starts to learn the piano and his family reacts to it because the last person to play the piano was his dead father. And like, the depiction of his mom's reaction and the actual like writing of the grief there is so fucking good. Mm -hmm. Like she really, really nails it, especially through the lens of a kid because Charlie is noticing things happening to his mother, but he doesn't fully understand why he knows that his mother is hurt and like staring at the piano, like a deer in headlights, but he doesn't quite get it. And mm -hmm. fucking, he talks with his grandma who starts talking about his dad and being very clear that she did actually love Charlie's dad. Like it really stood out to me this time. Like, Oh, she is genuinely sad that she's genuinely sad that her son is dead. And like, she, she seems genuinely sad that she was the one that had to kill her son. The The subtext of this I've been getting the whole time is that, like, the, yeah. the dad mysteriously drove his car into a quarry, and the, mm -hmm. the entire subtext to it is that, like, he wasn't following the plan, so he had to be eliminated. Uh, that's, and that's yeah. and that's what added, that's what added like, a whole level of trauma to the mom who... I imagine, like, was very glad that Charlie might have missed getting entangled with this nonsense, like, Dickensian warlock world. Uh, and then he does 
stumble upon it and she's like oh christ he's so much like his dad and he's falling into a dangerous world of assassins or whatever yeah uh charlie's mom specifically says at one point whenever charlie's ability starts to surface she said he's got their blood you can't get away from that meanwhile she's sitting down looking like pale with her face in her hands like yeah she's been trying to run from this shit constantly <laughs> um but yeah so charlie's dad drove his car off a quarry and but it really and like a lot of suspicion is thrown at the u-beams and this other family the bloors who manage this school that charlie's going to just for context um, if anyone's not reading yeah. the book alongside us which uh give it a shot go to the library uh yeah, uh, yeah. the u-beams are his like spooky aunts and like that side of yeah. the family uh mm -hmm. dan i feel like we've been passing by things that you've been wanting to say and i can't expect you to like Sorry. keep uh keep a list of them so you could bring it up once i finally bring attention back to you but like uh you can shout at us or uh do the thing that i said where you just type stack into the uh oh, discord right. chat and, and then that just means like oh i would like to talk next it's just yes. an easy way okay. to operate it we're we're, bounce, so I, we're bouncing I around did, this because yeah i did take note of that the fact that this is you know, the, like I said, you're viewing it through his his eyes, but I love the fact that you're also seeing the adult fears that are surrounding him in his life. Because usually if you're introduced to a magical, secret magical world, the character can't wait to get into it. And oh, it's hell yeah, dude. Exciting. And this is something he dreads, and it's like, and it's very clearly from an early, from early on, it's, it's dangerous as hell. It, like, he stands a good chance of dying if he gets involved in this. And, like, I honestly, I hope at the end of all this, he just gets to go to a normal high school with Benjamin Brown and play with Runner Bean in the vacant lot somewhere. Like, Well, he's got, like, eight books full of adventures, so I don't think that's happening anytime yeah. soon. No, but maybe in the end, Cincinnatus gets to go to his farm. But <laughs> anyway, I think, um, um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, man. I feel, uh, oh, right. I mentioned how I like... You know how okay i like how the family is horrible but you know it's it's in a realistic way they're, they're elitist and controlling and part of the whole side part of the whole blowers academy thing strikes me as a take that to british private schools but um maybe but i i have no experience there so you know jenny nemo maybe has some subjects there but um but yeah it's it's just an interesting more realistic take like if you found out that your family had this secret magical side and you know it wasn't all fun and games yeah this would probably be something like what you go through this Kinda is the, read this as a the magic and it's the magic and excitement that like a lot of bored suburban kids like the ones reading this book uh would relish the opportunity you have a little mm -hmm. superpower you can like uh hear the pictures which is great for all of the mysteries seem to have all the mysteries he's involved in like seem to have some pictures that he can learn about but also mm -hmm. uh the mom and uh his other grandma on his mom's side who i was picturing in my head as the the farmer's wife from the movie babe uh i'll post a picture of her in chat um was no i lost my train of thought oh yeah they had like tabloids and like pictures and stuff of celebrities and they're like what are they saying about these old celebrities and he didn't want to tell them he was like nervous about it because they were cussing and like telling a an actress that she was fat at the pool or something but they were like having a good laugh at it because he could because it's such a little peek into I don't know. Imagine like imagine some picture of like Richard Nixon signing some crap, and you like get to listen to that and be like, "Oh no, war crimes!" 
<laughs> yeah, I I loved that moment. There there were two moments before Charlie goes to Bloor's that had to do with his powers that I absolutely loved. It was that one and the time where he was like, huh, because he ran into Manfred Bloor, the kid who like is his generation from the Bloor family. But he saw a picture of him and he ran into him and like, oh, Manfred seemed to know who I was. I wonder if when I'm looking at people, they can see me too. So he just experiments with it. He takes a picture of his friend Benjamin and he looks at it and then Benjamin's just having some yogurt and one of the <laughs> strawberries turns into Charlie's head. Like, yes, He sees yes, Charlie's face in the yogurt in and I'm like, oh God. What a choice of food. Like a yogurt is the grossest food to see somebody's face in. <laughs> I would... I would choose to see a strawberry in my yogurt turn into my best friend's face over, like, about to eat some chili and one of the beans turns into your face. Well, you, you, so, so was it the strawberry chunk? It's a chunk of strawberry itself? Because I thought it was, like, the actual cream of the yogurt turned into Charlie's face. I think I it, was it was a, a strawberry. I think it's a strawberry itself, yeah. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it just... It was it was just so much fun. It was just like this moment of, oh, yeah, he's like, he's testing his powers. He's seeing where things are. And immediately, Grandma Bone is like, you're being frivolous with your powers, Charlie. And it's like, damn, I did one thing. I'm not like, he's not robbing anybody for money with the power or anything yet, so. Um, I'm not like Uncle Patton going on walks and blowing shit up for fun. Just for effect. Just for dramatic effect to scare Charlie when he's following him on the walk. He's just like, why are you following me? I'll make light bulbs explode just to spook you. Um, Which also, Patton is, Patton is very dramatic. He's so, yeah. I like he's to so think, dramatic. Like, Charlie mentions that he gets up and goes on these walks frequently. This is like, when Charlie's not following him, is he just feeling like, oh, time to go brood? But it's like, what is he? Is he? He's not yeah. doing anything. He's just—he's not like—he's not like a secret assassin or something. He's just walking around. He's just getting some fresh air. And I always kind of headcanoned that like, Patton Patton's power boosting thing had like a little bit of a like battery almost, where like he needed to go on those walks from time to time to just like expend some of that energy. So that he, he wouldn't, like, blow shit up in the house. Which lends that. to the gay subtext, is that he needs to be able to get it, he needs some way, an outlet, to get it out of his system. <laughs> so that people yeah. don't find out about it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, and also, like, now that the the plot is in full swing, uh, Charlie is going to this academy, and it's like, alright, cool, I, I don't have any ability to catch up with the uh, curriculum, so his grandma gives him this giant packet full of like 500 questions that he works on with Patton. Um, and also at one point, all of his family is out and this furry dude in a trench coat just bounds right into the house. Hello, I'm Mr. On a Mouse. There's a, got there's three a flame colored cats. There's a lot going on at this part in the book that it's it's as we're talking about it, it's really hard to keep track of chronologically. And I still want to talk about Benjamin Brown. We'll get to him. But we yeah, definitely yeah, will. He gets a huge book of like SAT questions that he has to do, but the 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 great ants are just like, uh, we don't care. Look it up on the fucking internet. What's it, 2001? You can, you know, they got digital encyclopedias. Go look it up. Answer the fucking questions, and his uncle helps him. Uh mm -hmm. so He's just he's just filling out the answers for it. He's just fucking cheating it. Um, yeah. And that was interesting because the that showed the great aunts is just like, we just want him in the fucking school. I don't care if he's smart or whatever, or if he does it legitimately. Yeah. He's just got to get mm -hmm. in that school. Absolutely. 
Um, um, but Anna Mouse shows up. He's like, hey, you got the wrong picture, but I need your help. That picture was drawn to you. So were the cats. Uh, you need to go find the person whose picture this is. Because when Charlie was listening to the picture, he found out like, oh, this guy in the picture is giving up this baby. Oh, that, wait, weird. no, we forgot about the picture swap at the photo mats. That oh, was right. one of the key <laughs> things is that that was one of the starting things is that Charlie was getting a picture of Benjamin's dog blown up for a birthday card. So he went to the photo mat to have the picture expanded, but they gave him the wrong picture, which Charlie started hearing. And it's about a man who sold his baby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, there was a fire at Bloor's Academy that was in Manfred's office. That was a different uh, that was photo a that happened. he heard the sounds of yes okay yeah. uh, so fucking but, he's just he's he's home alone this kid and they're kind of latchkey kids it's fine and then like out of nowhere just this dude in a big coat like barges into his house and be like oh the name's on him as i'm here with my cats i'm an exterminator here to find some rats and the these <laughs> colorful these you know crayon red orange and yellow cats run around the house and like compile a row of mouse corpses in the kitchen and Mr. Onimus is just like, boy, I sure got a little spooky little situation here. You got the wrong picture. Maybe find where it goes. I'm Mr. Onimus and I'm out of here. And he just, and that's it. Yeah. I distinctly yeah. remember the line. Charlie said, well, I was told never to let strangers in the house, but he's already in here. So he's not a vampire. We know that much. Yeah. Um, the amount of people but, who show up at doors in this in this, these early chapters. It's just yeah. all about like going back and forth in the neighborhood and just like walking around, knocking it on doors. Really go to the book go to the bookshop. Go to Ben's place. Go back home. Your aunt's there. She's here to like berate you and give you homework. Go back out to Ben's house. Find a mystery key. Go back over to the bookshop. Patton's there. It's just th the. Yeah. This first half of this book we read, yeah, Miles, you described it. The middle chunk of it is just so much like running back and forth in this neighborhood, doing all sorts of just like stuff that does progress the mysteries. It's not meaningless, but like he'll just be like, and then Ben went home and then I went over to Ben's house and then Ben wasn't there. So I went back to my house, but Ben was there. And that's yeah, and that's when we solve the mystery. And I'm like, wait, why? Are, so much of the comings and goings is kind of nonsensical. But if you're a latchkey kid, I guess fucking uh, this checks out. Yeah, which yeah. Ben absolutely is. Like his parents work six days a week, and whenever they are there, they're mostly sleeping because they work like crazy long hours. I don't ben believe is like he the said what their jobs are yet, but we'll get into it eventually. Ben and Ben is the saddest little boy. He has no friends, and his parents <laughs> don't have time for him. And there's no food in his house. I think they say like there's milk in one egg. So like, how do we bake a cake for his birthday? The birthday that nobody showed up to except for Charlie. And yeah, everything about Benjamin is just like the most crushingly depressing, miserable childhood shit. Absolutely, Dickensian. They yep. go so hard on, like, just explicitly saying, like, yeah, Benjamin Brown is a loser who has no friends. And when Charlie yep. goes off to this private school, life is going to be horrible for him. He gets bullied so much, he can't even tell that he's being bullied. And there was one like, bit where, like, Benjamin's upset with Charlie, and Charlie's like, hey, it's not my fault. I don't want to go to this fucking school. And I'm like, damn, bro. <laughs> Cold. <laughs> yeah, but then Benjamin, being the wonderful giving person he is and he's always down for an adventure for mm -hmm. he, he's gonna need some therapy for like to help deal with saying no to people he's just like oh okay yeah that makes sense all right then like yep. buddy and the, and the friendship okay. you'll make more friends the friendship between <laughs> charlie and benjamin is not cynical charlie it's like not. has some pity That's... for benjamin but like yeah. they are friends 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, there's that one point during the birthday party where, you know, he says, I guess I should go home, but I can't leave Ben alone on his birthday. Yeah. 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 He, he, he just does genuinely down. care about Benjamin, just yeah. not that much. And I'm going to get into that once we talk about the case. Uh, because, so yeah, Charlie is like, oh, I'll look at the original photo. Oh, it's pointing me to a place called Ingledews. Just for clarity, it's- this is the photo that got swapped at the photo mat of yeah, Benjamin's dog. dog. Benjamin's dog is like one of the main characters in this book that we haven't talked about yet, who just can like yeah. sense mystery and barks at mysteries. Um, and yeah, uh, so, right. So Charlie yeah. got the picture of the man who sold his baby daughter and then finds out, oh, yeah, because it was uh, Mr. Onimus who says, mm-hmm. like, oh, you got a, you seems like you got a little picture miss up there, young man. Better go to Ingledews to sort that out. Ooh, that's the next clue. Go to Ingledews. Well, he just says, look on the back of the thing. There must be an original photo in there somewhere. And conveniently enough, it's it's labeled with the little with the little ticket of, oh, yeah, Miss Julia Ingledew, which it is so hard for me to say Ingledew. Because as a kid, I constantly read it as Indeglue. Indeglue. Julia Indeglue, not Julia Ingledew. Igludo. But yeah, he goes there and he's like, hey, I think you have a picture of my friend's dog. Also, I heard your dead brother-in-law talking about giving up his baby. She's like, come in. Don't tell anyone. He sent me a bunch of shit. He was an inventor. He died like a week ago and he sent me all of this garbage. Here's a talking robot dog stereo <laughs> you your best friend for a birthday present and the only tape in it is of my dead brother-in-law's voice and also here's a metal case that you know i don't know what it is oh here's a mysterious heavy. box full yeah. of whatever uh my yeah, yeah my uh brother-in-law ted kaczynski left this with me before he disappeared <laughs> take this fucking box and fucking charlie hears it ticking and like (laughs) and he he gives it to benjamin with no it outright says he pretends not to notice that it did it and gives it to benjamin for safekeeping like who's this lady who's just like ticking briefcase to your best friend oh my god and who's this even says she could be a terrorist you know they're very good at disguising themselves like what the fuck (laughs) what does that mean (laughs) Which also, I don't remember if it's explicitly stated or not, but I always thought that uh, that Julia in- Ingledew uh, had red hair, and now that I'm putting that mental image with those words, I'm like, does he think that she's in the IRA? <laughs> what? <laughs> did, did Benjamin think that Ingledew was in the IRA? Oh my god. I guess that would be um, the... Because this was... What, was this book this put was out happened. sort of like... Okay, so it was like post 9/11, I guess, but like depending on when it was written because like that changed our like the cultural use of the word terrorist. I think in this mm-hmm. context, that sounds a lot more IRA actually. I think you're yeah, right. It does. So then like then so like I'm an arabesque into, terrorist. So I am going to get into when this book is set. Um and a little bit of when it came out too because those two things kind of go hand in hand. Um one it is set. I looked it up because at one point they mentioned like Oh, Charlie's doing his homework and Benjamin wants to hang out. Oh, well, um, oh, God, it was Heart of a Dog. Yeah, Heart of a Dog is playing in the cinema. Why don't you go take Runner Bean to that? I didn't think that was... That was a joke that just, like, I'm going to go take my dog to see a movie about a dog. I think he'd like that. But I I didn't think that was a real movie. Okay, so tell us about that. It is a real movie. I looked it up because (laughs) I wanted to find out when Charlie Bone is set. 
spoiler alert, it's not it's not when Heart of a Dog was playing. So Heart of a Dog, aside from the name of a 2015 documentary, which I'm pretty sure Jenny Nemo wasn't in the know about in 2001, 2002. So that would be um, a real twist. Heart of a Dog, the only other movie, uh, is a Russian film from 1988 based on a play from the 50s about a doctor turning a dog into a man by implanting the testicles and pituitary gland of a dead criminal into it. And that dog steadily becomes a man and then eventually like goes fucking crazy and starts like trying to kill people and so is turned back into a dog. Um, but here's the thing. Oh my oh, yeah. god. Oh, yeah. Also, it was a uh it was a satire of Bolshevism. Um which Edward is... love Edward. <laughs> um yeah, so so here's the thing. This Kill me. This book is set in October of 2000, or it starts in October of 2002. Most of it takes place in November, which uh, for those of you playing along at home, it was, it released in the UK in January, 2002. So it's set nine months after it released, which is, I haven't run into another book like that. That isn't a sci-fi book with, so just like congratulations points for originality, but it is set in, October and November of 2002, which means if this movie is actually playing there, this is two 10-year-olds talking about and casually referencing, oh yeah, this uh, 20-year-old Russian film is playing in our local cinema. A 20-year-old Russian film about a man that put the fucking endocrine system of a criminal into a dog, so he become dog man murder beast. Yeah, and was a critique Aww. of Bolshevism. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so Charlie Bone is set in October and November of 2002, which also means... Uh, okay, fair I know enough. We were, talking about, we were talking about, when is this set? Because it's like weirdly Dickensian, and a mm -hmm. lot of British young adult media is in this horrible, like, cultural miasma where it's simultaneously current and, like, at least a decade behind culturally yeah. but to put this in perspective okay so it came out in 2000 january of 2002 set in october and november that means that charlie bone uh even being a couple years out of date could be on just like hang out in his room or on the bus playing golden sun on his game boy advance oh you <laughs> uh and also oh by the end of the first book could be playing metroid fusion and just trying to picture Charlie Bone playing Metroid Fusion. Dude, Metroid Fusion little... kicks ass. <laughs> it, it does. But it also means that, like, the rich kids he goes to school with would already be playing Halo or Mario Sunshine or Morrowind or Jet Set Radio Future. Ooh, the good shit. Game the Fusion good shit. <laughs> yes. It also means that when Charlie goes into town looking for a birthday present for uh, Benjamin, in theory, his uh local toy store or grocery or like general store whatever could be carrying the Bullrock and Toa Nuva Bionicle sets because those oh, were man. also out at that same time. No, but instead what he gives his friend for his birthday is a haunted bomb dog with the voice <laughs> of a dead man who sold his daughter yep. into slavery. Because also, because it was free from a crazy <laughs> woman in a bookstore. Also during Charlie's second weekend at Bloor's the extended edition home video release of Fellowship of the Ring came out. 
and their their movie theater had already long since finished showing attack of the clones and harry potter in the chamber of secrets oh my god this is so yeah so that's that's the time capsule he is in right miles miles when we were when we were starting this podcast you were like i gotta talk about the time period this was in and i thought wow but you have made this an incredible segment of this is like a period piece now. The fact that you the fact that you've drawn this back to an esoteric Russian film being screened in 2003 uh Wales is 2002, 2002 in Wales is fucking incredible. Oh, I am not done drawing oh back the curtain on some God. esoteric shit. Let's go. Because I'm just out in the US. This came out in the U.S. in March of 2003. Now, Jamie, when you were prepping your intro, I I got inspired and I looked up what the Billboard Top 10 were at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And somewhere around like number eight or number nine was the cover of Landslide uh, performed by the Dixie Chicks. And the reason that stood out to me was because the Dixie Chicks not only still had a career, but had a very successful career at this time uh, for those of you who don't know much about country music, which I would consider myself kind of a part of, but also kind of not really. I know about um, what happened to the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, so the Dixie Chicks spoke out against the war in Iraq and got absolutely shit-canned from the country music industry. A they bunch were of fucking balls. Rush Limbaugh's like, whipped up a whole bunch of, like, the damn Dixie Chicks anti-American, they don't want wars? Uh, so at the time, the two most successful country music artists, from what I could tell, were the Dixie Chicks and Toby Keith. And Toby, Toby Keith, uh, yeah. So Toby Keith was was that like current modern definition of country music of like mm-hmm. hyper masculinity, hyper patriotism, and like real formulaic shit that's just trucks, dogs, women, and beer. Uh, occasional jesus thrown in for flavor definitely also jesus thrown in but when the dixie chicks spoke out against the war in iraq at a show in england in march of 2003 because of the upcoming invasion of iraq also in march of 2003 uh also that month is when the game boy advance sp came out but that's not related <laughs> to this. that's just uh, for fun. it's really important though it's important so, to me <laughs> but this was a turning point in so many ways because the Dixie Chicks got blacklisted from the industry, which also meant that other acts like them also got blacklisted or were for- forced to adapt because then the only successful country artists were the ones who were being lumped in with Toby Keith because that's what everyone was going for because they were pushing that hyper patriotism and that like just constant enforcement of the establishment, which is also kind of what country music had always been against was the establishment. Mm-hmm. But that's country music yeah, history. Okay. Uh, but like, and I've just looked it up, and I've looked it up, and Toby, because I thought so. Toby Keith was the guy with the song "Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue," where the lyric was, yep. "We'll put a boot up your ass." It's the American way. So yep. totally opposite of the Dixie Chicks and their anti-war message. But this was, you're right. A, this was a pivotal point when, like, the breed of country music that was absolute bootlicking U.S. imperialist bullshit was uh, in full swing, and the Dixie Chicks fell the dixie chicks yeah. were annihilated in favor of uh yes we love bombing the browns in another they, continent we're america they telling also... me that the conservatives invented cancel culture they canceled the dixie chicks <laughs> that was the fir- that was the first cancel so they also um they had also just released an album that included a cover of 
a song from I think the 70s or 80s about how country music was headed for destruction and was so against its roots. It was something like they've got money but they don't have cash, like referencing Johnny Cash and like they've hmm. got um Johnny Cash representing got, the fucking heart and soul of yeah, country as an art form. Who was 100% against the establishment. So much so that when like record labels were like, no, you have to toe this very specific like conservative Christian line, he was like, uh, no, I'm going to go perform for uh, people in maximum security prisons. Yeah, Folsom, right? The... Also humans. Folsom and San Quentin yeah. um, were the two big ones. But like, I mean, I don't know much about Johnny Cash's politics other than that he could have also been pretty conservative i'm not sure but like it was this huge turning point for that and then also a huge turning point for our definition of terrorism tying it back to the mm -hmm. ingledew thing because yeah once like 9 11 did change our definition of terrorism but it got swept up even more once we invaded iraq because that was when we were really pushing that like hardcore like yes they are islamic extremists this is what's happening there we need to go in and we need to stabilize the entire place to stabilize yeah that's it. what we'll do is stabilize it with bombs because if uh, if american history will tell you anything an occupying military force from a foreign nation always stabilizes a population that's not what caused our entire fucking country to happen <laughs> But, oh, uh, uh, speaking yeah. of the uh, this podcast is dedicated to the brave Mahajadeen fighters in Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, is that Rainbow Three? <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a joke because at that time they were like the American supported rebels, and then I think they became Al Qaeda, the villains. They did. They absolutely yeah. became Al Qaeda. They so that, so that's the joke. So when, we were, uh, yeah. when we were doing the invasion of Iraq, we were funding and training the organization that would later become ISIS. Because if they didn't later become ISIS, they might have become socialists, which would be worse. Or they could have interrupted the U.S.'s stranglehold on the Middle Eastern opium trade. And where is Purdue Pharma going to get their fucking opium from? Because uh, oh. all that, because then they're not going to get their billions of dollars to do innovation and job creation. So think now about that. Yeah. Now we have so to rehash the Scorpion. So Okay, thank thank oh everybody God, for yeah. in, in case you didn't notice this is a leftist podcast. One of the yeah. one of the billions of them. So when I was saying leading up to this like hey don't look up when this is set and also I have so many fucking things that I want to talk about with you guys but I can't. Yeah, this is a lot of what I was thinking about. I was just like, this is worth shit, waiting this for. Is such a pivotal thing. Incredible deep so dive into the contemporary pop culture of the Charlie Bone book. Um, unfortunately, oh, the next seven books are set over the course of like only two more years. So there's going to be a lot less of that. But this is the scene setting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was great. You know, I, that also might make more sense of the fact that, like, of course there's a an old guard establishment like authoritarian school in this context that makes perfect fucking sense now yeah um huh. yeah so that was where a were lot. we <laughs> that was uh, we fun. were that was we were for. uh charlie left the case at benjamin's house and you know they go there he tries to open it they don't have a key for it he goes mm -hmm. back to the bookstore, tries to get a key from Miss Ingledew. She just hands him a big old 
bundle of keys. Meanwhile, that time, Uncle Patton is there with him, and he's like, hey, how's it going? Could I you, like, uh, come back sometime? You come, after, hey, uh, what, 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 what are you up to this <laughs> weekend? You know, you want to go... Uh, you want to go see a dog's heart? It's a fantastical, like, <laughs> experimental Russian film. Yeah. I like how I, he asked me, may I call on you again after dark? <laughs> I, <laughs> after dark. I love Patton so much. He's one of my favorite characters. The man is a disaster. Uh, hey, I don't know if you need a date, but I need a beard. So... <laughs> Um, so fun, I, I keep imagining Uncle Patton as Stephen Fry, and now it just works so well. Oh wow, that is the wow, that is so very different from my image of him. But I'm, I won't, but I won't I take understand. that. It's been Idris for me the entire time. It's been Idris. Okay, yeah, I like him better as Idris. I like him uh, much better. Oh god, there was. I think this time around, I, I realized the like image I was kind of thinking of. Uh, longer hair and a little bit of a beard, but do you guys remember the actor who played uh, Darwin in X-Men First Class? Yes. I was kind of thinking him too, because they also do a little bit talk about how like thin and tall Patton is, but he's also got these like really defined features. Oh, word, dude. Eddie, Eddie Gathegi. I'm still, It's it's been a couple years. I'm still so pissed off that yeah, they just they melted the him. mutant, but that... This isn't, well, this isn't an X-Men podcast. <laughs> he was the black one, so what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, but but Edwin Carthegia, yeah. I like that. Um, but so she gives him a big ring of keys because she's not sure what's happening. And also she's a little bit intimidated by Patton. Rightfully so because he's being a bit of a creep. Uh, not intentionally, but intention is irrelevant. Um, Hi. Uh, hey, how's it going? I think you gave my uh, nephew a mystery. Would you like to give me a little bit of that strange... <laughs> Or whatever. It's, I don't know. <laughs> you gave my nephew something strange. What about me? <laughs> okay. The the joke's in uh, there somewhere. We don't have to find it right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Charlie's been getting stalked by this redheaded kid dressed up as a, an adult. Um, yeah, I love how everyone knows he's just a kid dressed as an he's adult. He's just that fucking guy. He's yeah. got like a trench coat and a fake mustache. Um, but Charlie goes over to Benjamin's house and tries to unlock the case and can't do it because apparently none of those keys work but he's in the dark and he's like just fiddling around and he feels that the case has letters engraved in it called tolly 12 bells what are you fucking sure reading braille help. now charlie oh yeah also the guy's name was tolly in case we forgot to mention that okay um, but, oh yeah and his daughter I, I, is at bloors maybe i wasn't keeping track there. super well of this but i thought that he tried i thought charlie like tried five out of the ten keys and then gave no. up and i yeah, thought I like no. use the rest of the keys yeah, I was coming to. Wait a minute. He didn't get through he, all of them. He did get through all of them. Okay. Uh, That's he, what I thought because I must have missed that the because first. the because then it goes like, well, the, none of these keys work, and I'm and me thinking like, wait, did did you try all of them? What the fuck? No. So he start. He goes through the first five, and then uh, what was that? Aunt Ven yeah, Aunt uh, Venetia shows uh -huh. up at Benjamin's door. Knock and knock. Benjamin closes the door and turns off the light, and. So Charlie tries the next five in the dark, but at that point the focus is shifted on like it's dark. What's happening? Aunt Venetia's here. That's messed up. Um, but Tr yeah, we, we, and then I think we should have revisited those keys and you know do it do another Passover of all of those keys. That's definitely fair. Uh, but then Charlie leaves and Venetia grabs him and takes him in and Grandma Bone and Aunt Venetia interrogate Charlie and don't get anywhere and then just give up. That's what I thought. Uh, the, the, these fucking was, th this happens a couple times. 
in this first half of the book we read is that they would be like, oh, what are you doing? Are you trying to solve mysteries, Charlie Bone? And he's like, no, I'm not trying to solve any mysteries. He'd be like, mm, you're lying and we can tell. Anyway, I'm going to leave now. No consequences yeah. for you. Um, but then Charlie starts learning piano and working on this big homework set. He starts learning music from another student, Fidelio Gunn, who is the best fucking teacher in the world. I guess so. He's he's a prodigy. He's a music man. Yeah. I, I thought prodigy. for a while that his um that his endowment was making people good at music because he right? told Benjamin Brown to play the flute in like ten minutes. So that's he like did. a legitimate. No, that's an endow. He said he wasn't endowed, but that's yeah. a legitimate endowment. If you have a superpower to teach people music really fast, that's extremely valuable. You could like yeah. you could do a lot of good good with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, also Charlie got hypnotized at one point by Manfred Bloor, he ran into him, and he got hypnotized, and Charlie saw a vision of himself in a car, and then he got pulled out of that car as that car just fell into a ravine, you know, a lot like how his dad died. Some, some kind and of quarry-type ravine. Charlie's immediate ten-year-old assumption from this is, the Bloors had something to do with killing my dad, and not, my dad was hypnotized and is still alive because he saw a vision of himself as his dad getting pulled out of the car. Well, okay, but I don't know. Is a fucking is a, is a vision when you're being hypnotized by a child is that trustworthy? I don't know. Like I, yeah. I yeah, I can think we're like, look, I'm not coming to conclusions right now about what that vision was about, but we can. I'm in. I'm in. I'm unraveled in some magical stuff, so I can begin to assume that based on this vision, a certain someone might not have died when their certain car fell into a certain yes. quarry. Yeah, but I just I love that Charlie, as a wonderful example of a ten year old, just does that thing of the Bloors had something to do with my dad's death, and not questioning if his dad is dead. He does but, to his credit. He does that later on. But, he does. He does figure that but out. Only being explicitly told that his dad is dead so this is all in so, so this is there anything else right now in the lead up to him going to the academy okay so so wait uh, so at some point mr is... mr onimus and his cats mm -hmm. break into benjamin's house to like move the box so that aunt lucretia doesn't find it and i'm like yes. okay he's clearly like maneuvering the machinations in the background and it's like of course uh subtext that onimus and his cats were the ones that switched the photos of the photo mat initially yeah, but it's yeah. sort of just like okay you're just like going into people's houses all the time now like that's great uh Honestly, a lot of these people in like uh semi-rural wales are uh in 2002 or something are really just uh very welcoming to any like large trench-coated man and his cats coming in to do mouse exterminations I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, well, why didn't Mr. Onimus just take the case then? No one seems to be able to pin him down. And he's got the, he's got the cats. He's got those flames. They've got magic powers. At and some point, the cats, like, the cats do this thing where they like run in a circle and they spin and turn into fire. And I think that's the cats use flame wheel and it's not very effective. <laughs> Except for the one part that it did burn down a house that the one Bloor kid was just like, I bet those fucking cats burned down my house. <laughs> he knows immediately. Um, yeah. But then, yeah. but then Charlie and Benjamin just decide. Oh, I know who will be great for this case. Fidelio, the guy you other, just the met. The other person I talked to. My aunt's on thing to look in his house. There's. He goes to the academy. Who's to say he's not in the pocket of the Bloors? <laughs> well, because he's nice. 
Oh, he's nice. They and there's a lot. There's teach, a lot of. There's, able to teach Charlie how to play piano in two hours. In the machinations of these mysteries, there's a lot of people like Miss Ingledew comes to mind where she's like, and Charlie, you mustn't tell anybody what I've told you tonight. And he immediately is just like, hey, Benjamin, do you know that this lady gave me a box and said it was had something to do with the exchange of a human child? To be fair, she said, tell no one you wouldn't trust with your life. Okay. And he would trust Benjamin with Later, life. he trusts some other, he trusts some fucking peers from his class that he was in detention with. We'll get to yeah. it. We'll get to it. But there was there was a couple points in this book where I'm just like, Charlie, shut the fuck up. You're involved with espionage and intrigue. Shut the fuck up. You're implicating a lot of your other friends who might get killed. We've proven that motherfuckers get thrown into quarries over this type of shit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Charlie, next we see Charlie. He's basically on his way to floors, but he's getting stuff from his mom. He's getting this blue cloak that he has to wear, sorry, sapphire cloak that he has to wear as part of his out his uniform for the music school. Um, he's also given his he's given a blue tie, and he's also given his father's tie from when his dad went to Bloor's, because his mom is like, well, you know, just keep it with you as something to remember him by. It's like, okay, at this point, his mom has got to have fucking low level precognitive powers because fucking spoilers one of the kids in his class has clothing psychic powers the same way that charlie has <laughs> picture psychic powers uh, the clothing but, psychic powers kids comes in to tell you a little bit of a, a little clue but they go they go to the fucking school charlie's mom looks up in one of the towers looks like she's seen a ghost and then just says i ha i have to go I have to go. I have to get out of here. I'm sorry, Charlie. And we're just like, huh, wonder who she just saw. Hmm, also, that's fuck weird. Every, that's as, as, as we run through the plot processes, like everything about this book has like a bunch of faffing about and little peripheries, such as like Charlie describing like his other grandma's like nice spaghetti that he likes. And yeah. the fact that like, well, I don't want to take a taxi to the school. I'll look like a dork. And I, the yeah, you, I, you, I you, you have to go to the school all week, but you come back on the weekends. Yeah, it's so weird. Those rules I don't are so get it. Strange. How far away from his house is this school? I got the impression that it's, it's just in the on same the other side of town. Yeah, it's like yeah. on the other side of town. Okay. Um. Oh yeah, Charlie also references this in these two rich neighborhoods, uh, the Heights and Dragon Street. That's um, hilarious. I love Dragon Street. <laughs> Dragon Street is great, and we'll get more into Dragon Street another time. But Charlie shows up to the school. Weird shit ensues, and. Uh, he gets slammed into by a girl with purple hair, a purple cape, purple eyes. You know what? I specifically wrote it down because Charlie's like, she's so strange. Like, Charlie, it's an art school. What do you <laughs> fucking expect? Some sort of some sort of girl, like from a dream, who's got the energy of a manic no. pixie. No. Uh Purple hair and cape. She had a purple pattern on her forehead. She was wearing purple shoes with high stiletto heels and very pointed shoes. Uh, so this is Olivia Vertigo, who of course makes her introduction by tripping and spends mm -hmm. a lot of time tripping. And I did not pick up on that joke as a kid because I didn't know what Vertigo was. No, I caught and that immediately and I was just like, fucking come on, dude. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he meets her and he also meets this little boy, Billy Raven, who has albinism and says that it makes his eyesight really bad. And that was another deep dive I did. I looked into oh, albinism. Here we go. Here we go. It, this I... is way less. 
progress. Oh yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Okay, so, no, okay. um, so I had a summer camper many, many moons ago who had al albinism and he was the most precious little dude ever. He was like five. And every time we transitioned from inside or outside, he had trouble. His eyes wouldn't adjust. So he'd come in in the mornings with his, his big thick sunglasses and he'd bump, he'd like bump into me and go, is this Mr. Daniel? Like, yes, it is like, good morning. Oh my God, my heart. <laughs> I know. I, know. Oh. I, I hope he's doing well in life. Oh, right what, a, what, a, what, a, what a little lad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, but... he didn't have red eyes though. Anyway. Yeah, so generally speaking, supposedly it doesn't affect uh, humans' eyes quite like that. Uh, the, the whole big thing with it is it does generally involve some kind of vision problems. In fact, more frequently than skin tone because it uh, uh, keeps you from being able to produce melanin, which uh, helps make parts of your eyes opaque. Oh. Um, but yeah, and also it definitely doesn't make your hearing any sharper like Billy says it does at one point, and that just kind of feels uh, Billy like just Billy just read some Daredevil comics, and his eyes were yeah. fucked, so he thought maybe it gives me, like, good hearing. That'd be fun. Um, also, I looked into rates of albinism, and apparently worldwide it's about one in every 17,000 people, uh, but that rate is much higher in sub-Saharan Africa, where it can be up to one in 5,000, but in Europe and the U.S., it's only about one in every 20,000. Hmm. Uh, but let's be real here. There's a lot of varieties and they're not always that noticeable. My guess is that's a lot of confirmation bias because it's easier to tell in uh, populations that generally have more melanin production whether someone is producing melanin or not. Because like there could have been several albino kids who went to our high school, Jamie, and we wouldn't have known. Yeah, nobody pays attention to uh, an albino in Norway because like m everyone in Norway is already like halfway there. Uh, but so anyway, Charlie goes into the place yeah. and meets up with Fidelio and also picks up Olivia's backpack because she drops it and gets yelled at because she tripped and she yelled when she tripped and you've got to be silent. You got to be silent in the halls, even if, you know, you trip. So letting this 10 year old girl leave the house with these stilettos like yeah no one's gonna be, no 10 year old's gonna be able to balance on that shit i don't so, care about any of the other things with it but like she can't balance she's 10 her legs aren't the right size for her anyway and so no as your legs are the right size for them when they're 10 <laughs> and so as you're at this school like we're feeling the institutionalization coming really strong where there's so many cryptic rules that you don't know literally charlie doesn't know because they didn't give him the packet with all of the rules on it mm -hmm. Um, also, his like his grandma maybe lost it or they just didn't give it to him. So it it uh, gives you this pathos of being a kid forced into like a new institutional situation and it feels like you are so set up to fail. Yep. Being uh, set up to fail is something that a lot of these books sort of do that is really relatable. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why also, when you said it's got ooh, sorry. sorry, I was just say like where you say it's got a Dickensian vibe, it does. And but it also has this Raw doll esque vibe that also like where you know I don't know how to explain it it's just like where the <laughs> things are just horrible for the sake of being horrible <laughs> in a way it it begs the question why is the world like this which in post industrial yeah. post imperial Britain is an extremely valid question this was post Thatcher Britain I guess at this point when yeah. you're just like yeah why is any of this like this and you have the mm -hmm. righteous question as Charlie Bone is trapped in these like ethnographies and like convoluted bloodlines and institutions you're just like why do i have to do any of this yeah. and that's an extremely valid question yeah 
Um, also, for concurrent media, I forgot to mention this because we hadn't <laughs> talked about her yet, but um, Olivia Vertigo was absolutely, at the time, listening to Pink and Avril Lavigne. Totally. Um, because they, they, that's, they were starting to get really big at that point. Um, so you think she got the idea to wear those shoes to school? The spoiler alert about the purple hair is that in a later scene, she just walks in and her hair is brown. She's like, yeah, it was spray on. And I yeah. was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> that lends like a lot more character to it than if she just had naturally like biologically purple hair. If, if yeah. her hair was just always purple, that would have just, that would have been so bad. But just that the, she yeah. was just like, yeah, I sprayed it on. I've been listening to like, uh, you know, early 2000s punk, pop punk. Yeah. So of course also, she's like, of course she's like doing that. Also, she's got that purple cape, which means she's in the drama department. So, fucking, of course she's showing up to school every week with a different outfit and look because let's be women here, be shopping. No, because <laughs> no, because drama students be changing their look. Come it's, on now, it, it was too easy. It was too easy. We. Um, oh, so, so Charlie's at Bloor's now, he's starting to go to these classes, they're just like, they're introducing all the different teachers, like, oh, this teacher's like that, this is the old man teacher, uh, there was one teacher who was, like, very dark and had sad eyes or was just tired or something, and I did, yes. unfortunately, just only be able to picture Eraserhead Mr. Aizawa from, uh, <laughs> My Hero Academia. That is entirely justified and fair and is the... That is the look for Mr. Pilgrim, the oddly blank piano teacher, Mr. Pilgrim. And he's mysterious. Like, there's a couple music teachers, but Mr. Pilgrim, like, only has, like, a handful of students because he's weird. Like, he's, it, it's, it sets him up as, like, some sort of, like, selective, like, specifically focused on certain prodigies type guy. Yeah. Uh, Charlie also meets Dr. Bloor, the headmaster, and... I don't know if this was being literal or figurative. Charlie's like, I discovered a new part of my powers. I could read faces just like I can read uh, the words in photographs. Yeah, I was and, just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right, you're just, you're an intuitive kid. Uh, but like, he's very certain that, oh, Dr. Bloor is the person who took this baby. Cool. He's the baby taker. <laughs> he, he is the baby taker. He does yeah. also meet one kind teacher. He meets Miss Crystal, the strings teacher, For all of who is described as being very young and pretty, and having yep. uh having very powerful perfume. Yeah. Oh, he's got like a he's got one of those ten year old crushes. That's he cute. does. He really does. Um, but let's see. Also, then after dinner, he goes and does homework. It, oh yeah. In the Charlie's cave. cape got stolen when he was out on a jog, and Fidelio was like. Hey, that place, there's some ruins. It was the Red King's castle at one point. Now we go there as a part of a yearly tradition to basically like run through this old ruin and someone disappeared there three years ago. <laughs> and then they and then they put you in a coffin and you have to jerk off and pee in the coffin and then you come <laughs> and then you're part of the skull society. <laughs> uh, but someone stole Charlie's cape while he was gone and left behind like a busted up broken one. So Charlie just doesn't wear it, and he gets detention for it. Um, but like, and and so along this whole and so along this whole pathway, uh, Fidelio or whatever his name is is like helping him out about just be like, okay, I'm I'm here with you. I'm gonna walk you through. This is your next class. That's your next class. They didn't give Charlie his goddamn schedule, which is nope. an anxiety dream about college that I have had before. Is it's the third day of classes and I don't have my schedule. Um, yeah, but 
Um, but, and and Fidelio is even just like, look, just 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 wear the fucking cape. Just wear the fucking cape and walk through the halls. We'll figure it out later. And Charlie's like, no, I don't want to. This is a gross cape and gets fucking detention. Yeah. He does also see that one of the other kids in his dorm, Gabriel Silk, has the cape. Uh, and then after dinner, he goes with Billy Raven, uh, the albino kid. I don't remember if I said his name. I think I did. Yeah. Uh, to the Red King's room where all the endowed children go to do that. Don't think homework. about it too hard. It's not important. There are no clues here. Yeah. This giant portrait of the Red King that Charlie just doesn't look at or try to listen to. He looks at it briefly for half a second and then is just like, meh, I guess I better do my homework. Like, I don't I don't know what all that is, but I don't want to hear it. It's too much mystery. Yeah. Um, uh, but Charlie meets all of the other endowed kids. Uh, I think they said their first names, but I'm going to go ahead and give their full names because, yeah, why not? Uh, he yeah. meets Gabriel Silk, Zelda Dubinsky, Dorcas and Bindi Loom, Beth Strong, Amelia Moon, who seems lost and confused a lot, Lysander Sage, uh, one of the only, uh, one basically the only explicitly black character so far, um, and Tancred Torson. Great names, uh, great names. Did I hear? Are, did I hear the name Dorcas Loom? Yes, you did hear so, the name Dorcas that's Loom. That's so fucking good, dude. <laughs> uh, you also heard. You also heard the name Bindi Loom, um, and Bindi, Bindi is Loom. Bindi is Indian. Um, oh, you don't say. Yeah, I know. Um, See, the only Bindi I know is Dorcas is daughter, but oh. Bindi is Indian, but Dorcas isn't. They're cousins. Um, okay. Jesus so Christ. Here's the thing. Fucking... There's a shitload of characters in these books. And oh. the thing I am so grateful for to Jenny Nemo for uh, is at the beginning of every subsequent book, there is a family tree of the U-beams and the Bloors, which is super cool and I love reading it and it changes throughout the series. But there is also a just laundry list of the main characters and their endowments and uh, I believe what side they're on most of the time. Yeah. And like gives a small little run rundown of the character. Which, thank you so much with a with a book series with this many fucking characters. Um, Dune had that too. It had whole glossaries and yes. uh, lists of the characters and their relations and like certain terminology. So when you hear Kwisatz Haderach for the nineteenth time, you're just like, "What? What the fuck does that mean?" <laughs> yeah, these resources are like big helps for stuff. In the same way that some yes. fantasy books would have a map. We talked about the Aragon oh, series ha constantly having maps the in them because. Shit because they constantly refer to these towns and valleys and mountain ridges and like the mines of Moria over here. And you're like, I don't know where any of that is, but I guess you've gone adventured to them at this point. So it's yeah. nice to put them in some sort of spatial context. Mm -hmm. And this uh, book, uh, instead of like a topography of a continent, like some fantasy books do, is way more focused on the genealogy of mm -hmm. all of its characters. So to lay it out in family trees is, and other like descriptions of characters is, is, is so helpful. Yes, yeah. it is. I um, appreciated the same thing in Miss um, Peregrine's Home for Pe Peculiar Children because I got them all mixed up. I was like, I, I need to know who's it. Like, yeah, oh, the, 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 the critical are... uh, children's book turned movie that this and uh, other magic school uh, young adult fiction totally ripped off. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one I was thinking uh, of. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, like the people are the topography. And the thing I really appreciate about it too is those characters are specifically put in there because they're talked about a lot. They are given arcs and development over the course of the series. So they actually, you know, do something with their side characters. Unlike, you know, 
some other magical school children books. Miss mm. <laughs> Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. <laughs> yeah. You can just say um, it. That's, yeah. That's just okay. it. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> we're going to touch back on more details about those endowed kids later. I want to get your thoughts on them. But before we do, let's finish out this plot. Uh, that night, Charlie goes back to his dormitory and steals his cloak back from Gabriel. And at which point, Gabriel just starts fucking screaming. Please don't take the fucking... Please, Charlie, I need your fucking... I need the good cape. I got the bad cape, Charlie. It's, give me, it's got poison in it, Charlie. The cape's got nightmares in it. It really is because Gabriel's power, his endowment, is he can read the like psychic energy from clothing that has been worn by someone else, which mm -hmm. is horrifying yeah. and he outright describes it as a curse and also so far we know of our four endowments at this point we know charlie can hear pictures we know his aunt eustacia i think either eustacia or venetia i don't remember uh has future vision and we know gabriel can have psychic vibes from clothes and his uncle Patton can blow up light bulbs Yep. It's not really oh, Doctor. It's not really Doctor Xavier's oh, we, we Academy over here. Bloor can young yeah, Manfred Bloor can hypnotize people. Yeah, Manfred Bloor can hypnotize people. But so far, the three powers for our protagonist characters are pretty fucking weak. Don't make now, me wear the fucking like cape, Charlie. Please, I can't wear that cape anymore, Charlie. It's killing. <laughs> yeah. So apparently, that cape was probably worn by the kid who disappeared in the ruins three years ago. And like every time Gabriel touches it, he just feels that the terror of a child who presumably died. Like, they never found the kid, but they found the fucking cape and brought it back and they're like, yeah, someone else can wear this. Priorities. Yeah. I mean. And it's it's fucking it's fucking ridiculous. Um but also, oh man, Gabriel at one point is talking about his family and it's the most <laughs> it's the most rich kid who doesn't realize he's rich thing. Um oh God, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Uh how many gerbils do you have? 53, said Gabriel miserably. They ate almost all of it. We haven't got much money, so Mom asked the Academy if they could give me a second-hand cape. You don't have much money, but you have 53 gerbils? Here's, here's my, here's my read. You occupy half your house, and no, you don't have much money? No, here's my read on this, is that th in, in a Dickensian fashion, they're living in a rat-infested, impoverished hellhole, and the parents told this kid... Those are our pet gerbils. We love them. They're our pets. Um, just to like, just to make him, just to make true? him feel kind of okay that there's like 53 rats in their fucking house. Do you want me to give a definitive answer as to whether that's what's happening? Go for it. Spoil it for Please. me. Spoiler alert. Um, genuinely, like a solid third or fourth of Gabriel's house is Tube City. <gasps> Have a trail, crazy town. Hell yeah, dude! That's gonna kick ass. Uh, yeah. But, like, Gabriel, you really, <laughs> really, you don't have much money, but you're able to take care of that many pets? Go to fucking, look, get your parents, look, you're being haunted by the dark feelings of a dead girl on your cloak. Take your parents to Joanne fucking Fabrics, get some felt. I don't care what it takes. Get a new fucking cape. Yeah. But so Charlie is a reasonable human being and is like, yeah, totally. My cape is new. You won't get any psychic readings off of this, except for, like, maybe a residual instance of, like, me farting and being embarrassed because I farted in class. I mean, I hate Not my like aunts like crazy, but that's the worst vibes I think I've got. 
Yeah, and he wasn't hating his aunts while wearing the cloak, so it's fine. Yeah. He was just farting. Um, I think but he they... does. <laughs> he's just like Gabriel. You know what you could do as repayment because Gabriel's like, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. If... Just don't make me wear the fucking cape, Charlie. Like, hey, Gabriel. I just happened to have been given this tie of my father's, and for my first week at school, why don't you put it on? Which fucking. I was just reading that and like, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with it if this just happened in his second week. Like, he goes home for the first weekend, asks his mom, like, hey, do you have any clothing item of dad's? And then brings it in. That would have hit him being yeah, resourceful and smart about using his relationships and the endowments of other kids. But he did just happen to have it right then and be like, hey, yeah. uh, hey there, uh, Silk, you want one more nightmare to live through so you can tell me about it? Which also, Gabriel Silk has clothing based ma it has clothing based powers of course um but yeah gabriel gets the read on the on the tie he's like wow i can feel a lot of happiness here but this person seems almost lost like they don't know who they are and then he does a read on something of uh something of billy's uh, or something of billy's parents and he's like oh i don't get anything here because it gets really it gets really minor whenever someone's dead this and is dead people Charlie's close. like hey why'd you Why'd you tell Billy that his family was dead, but me that my dad was lost? Because your dad's not dead. This Duh. is not a this is not a dead man's tie. You listen to me, Charlie Bone. I know a dead man's tie, and this ain't it. <laughs> and Charlie's like, what? Yeah. So congratulations, Charlie. You have now figured out that your dad is still alive. Mysteries yeah. abound. <laughs> And, oh, is lost and doesn't know who he is. Oh, who have we run into like that before? Oh, I wonder Maybe if there's any mysterious child? characters that Charlie Bone might have come across in his in his adventures so far. Yeah. Could be fucking, uh, like, I'm, I'm halfway between just being like, oh, it's either obviously Onimus or it's obviously just fucking Patton. Just Uncle yep. Patton. Oh, his dad here the whole time. Unless he's, like, older than I think. Is he great Uncle Patton? He is great Uncle Patton, but he's also like 20 years younger than Grandma Bone. So who's to say? Um, I also love the fact that as soon as, you know, this gift of Gabriel's has been revealed and, you know, he's been traumatized by this cloak, another kid comes forward with articles of like, Billy just comes over like yeah that that does feel real true to life though like dude, if it, it does dude imagine like ima okay so this is a british boarding school so excuse me if i get a little bit like uh lewd about it but like imagine you uh are just like uh hey uh silk what do you get feeling from this uh crusty sock and he's like it's a good prank it's a good prank to pull on the magic clothing if he wasn't 11 yeah, no, that, then that that's way more fucked in up. Few, but... In a few years, someone will in in that dorm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gabriel, Gabriel will just be fucking thirty years old doing the laundry at home, and he'll find a sock that doesn't have a match. He's like, "Huh, whose sock is this?" And find out that like his partner's cheating on him or something. Oh, dude, but imagine like <laughs> being an adult of a silk, and you like go to like a secondhand like lingerie store, and you're trying a bunch of stuff, and you're like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs> like imagine how f like that could be really fun like that could be really sexy it could but so gabriel talks about this he says that even when it's happy memories in something he knows that it's not his happiness that he's feeling <laughs> so it's just like <laughs> it's, it's still bad all these kids oh are so God, all these kids child. are so fucking sad <laughs> none of the good characters just a bunch, get good just a bunch of sad miserable little fucking kids at a british boarding <laughs> school for super powered eugenics
Um, That's why I'm like, it's very Roald Dahl-esque. Like, oh. yeah, there's this dark cloud hanging <laughs> It really... Oh, but but it's, uh, it's not even just them. It's everybody in this fucking book. It's Benjamin, especially, who's totally normal and also miserable. I, I really like that Benjamin and Fidelio are, like, actually friends. Like, yes. they meet through Charlie, but they are friends because Fidelio is just like, okay, well, you've got detention, so I'll, I'll just do the thing with Benjamin. I'll just, I'll just cool. Yo, yeah, I'll go, I'll go get that bomb from your friend Benjamin. <laughs> yeah, uh, they do. They, they hatch a plan. Fidelio is like, hey, just go up to this tower and look for me. I'll signal if we do the thing. It's like, okay. I didn't get that at all because they didn't say what time. They did not. They did, they not, did not say what say, time. They did not say what time to look uh, for him, giving the signal to the tower. Because uh, because uh, Charlie can't go home this weekend. He's in detention. Yeah. Exceeding where his uh, fucking cape. Yeah, and his detention is just you have to stick around for an extra day. Um, and Charlie fucking hangs out with uh, Olivia Vertigo and Billy Raven, and they find out that oh, Billy Raven's endowment is he can speak to animals, and they're and, and Charlie's like way op oh my for God, this. Can you talk to my best friend's yeah. dog? And Billy's just like animals have a lot of different languages it can be really tiring to talk to a lot of things also please don't tell anyone about my ability i don't want to have this conversation all the time like <laughs> how <laughs> fucking relatable and real jesus christ it was it was super real yeah yeah um uh, like again, but, you know a bunch of real kids that would happen everyone everyone and their brother would want him to talk to their dog absolutely uh but then and, and, really, I, would, and I would have yeah, to just and, be like, "What do you What do you expect your dog has to fucking say to you?" <laughs> right? They want They want more chicken scraps. Like, I think the real reason he he didn't want anyone to know is because he knows that Gabriel has fifty something gerbils. <laughs> yeah. To <laughs> so be like, "What are Hey, uh, I want you to come talk to my gerbils," and he's like listening to them, and they're like they're unionizing. Billy does talk to the gerbils at one point. Oh god! Uh, yes. And it's it's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Can't> <laughs> Uh, oh yeah also billy is like seven or eight he is younger than everyone else um oh he's an orphan right he is he is an orphan in the custody of Oh, but they fucking but they tell you a little bit of secret about his orphanaging it's not good dude it's bad it's not um so charlie billy and olivia all go through the da vinci tower which used to be used by the art department but there's there was a classroom or something up there, but now they can't go into it because also it's too there, there was some line no in it that was just like, like there was some line right, in it that it's like there's going to be a mystery there at some yeah. point. There was um, some line in it that's like oh it's the Da Vinci Tower and be like why is it named that and they're like I don't know and be like fucking after Da Vinci. <laughs> I mean like uh, are, are are we like the ten year old reader like not supposed to know what the name Da Vinci is referring to? I as the set I as the eight year old reader did so presumably we are Da Vinci, um, but um. Yeah, so they start to go up the Da Vinci Tower, and then Olivia trips and falls, because of course she does. Um, and she falls mm. down a spiral staircase and through a rotting door, somehow without injuring herself beyond scrapes and bruises. Uh, so congratulations to her. Her endowment is fucking, like, imperviousness. Uh, I, I lost the spatial awareness in this scene, because they were going into the tower, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I smashed through a door. And I'm just like, oh, are we at the bottom of the stairs now? Okay. Whatever. Yes, she she fell down like several floors worth of spiral staircase. Not great. Ouch. Yeah, no, not great. Especially since it's a stone staircase. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they find a workshop with a bunch of robots and armor parts and skeletons, and then they hide in the closet while Manfred and Doctor Bloor talk about Doctor Tolly's case, uh, the flames burning down Manfred's study, 
the flames are the cats. I don't remember if we said that or not, but yeah, that's the name of the cats. Oh, this chapter um, was called Clues at Last, and I think yes, because because the two villain characters, the adult villain and his son, the child villain who was the hypnotist, were both like suddenly revealing a lot of what is actually happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the flames burned down Manfred's study, and uh, Manfred talks about them being 900 years old, which is okay. Oh, who all would right. Yes, they're the same cats from the fucking prologue. Uh, what cats? Sorry, I forgot about them. I, I forgot about it too. It doesn't matter. It's from the prologue. <laughs> um, but but Manfred was like, yeah, I was just just I I I don't know. I don't know who let them in, but it might have been her. I had just given her a good beating for starting to wake up. Like. Okay, so that's presumably the child, um, and and then he was watching over Mister Pilgrim. Child. <laughs> He's been watching over Mister Pilgrim, who has changed since he arrived. Uh, he, of course, being Charlie, um, and they also assumed that Tolly Twelve Bells could wake up the hypnotized stolen baby, and they're like, "I bet it's Amelia Moon." Because it's probably an endowed kid, and she's the she like always seems super lost and confused, and she's really scared of Doctor Blore. It's like, yeah, fucking course she's scared of him. He abuses her. Oh, um, uh, we got to You know who I bet it is? It's a uh, uh, red. It's a uh, her name is Haringa Red. I don't know. It's red herring is what I'm saying. Oh, uh, okay. Like you remember a pup named Scooby Doo, and they had <laughs> a whole character named Red Herring that they would always blame the shit on. Yeah, but I was uh, trying to be like, what's what would be a girl, red, red, uh, Reda, Rita, Rita, Rita Herring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, things end out with, oh yeah, Charlie discovers that his Lucretia is honestly the ants blend together so much for me. It doesn't matter. Uh, but he discovers that his aunt Lucretia is the fucking matron of uh. Bloor's Academy, so she's the one who hangs out and is just like, you're out of bed too late. Like, and okay, he's like, cool, hey, Lucretia, you work at Bloor's? And she's like, I gotta pay rent, you little shit. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta pay your rent. I gotta pay your, your, your fucking mom's rent, you little shit. <laughs> uh, but fucking uh, Billy is just like, hey, could you listen to this picture of my parents? And she's like, yeah, totally. And then it goes like, Oh, oh boy. His parents are taking this picture at basically gunpoint. At gunpoint. Fucking... As Dr. Bloor has Manfred hypnotize them into giving them, into giving him Billy and presumably then killing the parents. Uh, and, and Charlie's just like, oh, they're just talking about how much they love you and you're going to be a star. It's like, Charlie, Charlie, Charlie you made the right decision on, to a certain degree because he is even more of a child than you and he can't handle that shit right now. But also, like, you know that's gonna come back to bite him. You know that's gonna come back to bite him because the like one bite... person that Billy's trusting right now just lied to him about something big. You don't have to tell him the full grisly details of like the, like the insane like consent breaking nasty like mental manipulation and dominations that happened to make your parents like do mutual suicide so that you could be enslaved as like a child orphan to this school but like tell him tell him that the Bloors had something to do with your parents disappearance 
Yeah. So this is a child who has been raised by the Bloors for the last several years. Like he is going to feel some kind of like beholdenness to them. And if it ever comes down to some sort of like conflict where like, you know, this kid has like the gun and it's like between Charlie and the Bloors and the Bloors are just like, didn't we raise you? And Charlie's just like, no, but the actual trick is that they fucking, uh, I don't know. You, sh- you just ought to tell them about yeah. that. Um, but so that brings us to where we finished reading for this time. It brings us to the end of the first half of the book. Uh, what do you guys think about it so far? It's an... It is an engaging and effective enough written mystery that us adults are able to be here, like, speculating on and engaging with it. Um, it's hammy in a lot of ways and obvious in a lot of ways, uh, but it's not stupid. It treats, yeah. it's uh, one of the best uh, compliments I can ever give any children's media is that it recognizes how smart children are. And trusts them to figure shit out on their own uh, to the extent that even as adults as we are, um, you're still really engaged with it. I'm not approaching it as cynically as I thought I might have been beginning this project. I'm actually, I'm into this. I'm invested in this. Yeah, I've been struggling not to keep reading since I finished doing our reading for this episode because I'm, I'm sucked back into it. And like, yeah, as a kid, I did a lot of like, conspiracy board style planning like okay these are the clues i'm picking up on like and realistically i feel like i was picking up on maybe three quarters of the actual clues that are being left but i was also eight (laughs) yeah so for the cognitive ability of a child like this is challenging but for the cognitive ability of a grown adult it's engaging yeah it's not hard Um, it's not i don't think i don't think a lot of this is going to surprise me but it's excellent Dan, yeah. what are you thinking? So I agree. I, it was engaging. It treated its it treats its readers as smart, and I mean, maybe it's just because I'm going back and reading it as adult. But like the things I mentioned before, how you're getting glimpses of a larger world, a larger mystery, and the adult context. Like I could easily see a book written from his mom's point of view or from the grandmother's point of view, because you get enough characterization and glimpses of what's important to them, and I appreciate that because you know. Like I said before, the nothing simple about his his home life that he starts out with. He's not like trying to escape some horrible, boring, mundane life. No, his life's pretty good. Um, you know, besides Grandma Bone being there, um, I like yeah. Some of the mysteries that were obvious, but I appreciate the fact that Charlie picked up on the ones that were really obvious right away. I think. Um, see, I I like the the world we're getting. Like it's, I don't know. There's not as much of a a masquerade as there is in other uh, wizarding school stories. Like there's in a whole world, you get a sense that there's a world behind it, but it's a world of you know secret, fam- like family secrets and societies. Kind of like discovering that you're, you know, the school you go to is secretly run by like the Freemasons or something. And it's like you know. It, it's a smaller world within that world. Like it, it's cool. Yeah, that's what's yeah. interesting is there isn't a lot of secrecy to the magic of this world. Um, yeah. Like Patton, for instance, keeps his stuff secret, and you know, presumably they tell Charlie, like, look, don't go, like, you know, telling the Sun reporters that you can read <laughs> pictures, uh, hear pictures. But there are uh, non-endowed, uh, mundane type uh, 
students that go to the school that regard the endowed as like a different class of students with, you know, heightened expectations and, uh, you know, other classes to go to, but it's not hidden world. Yeah. Something yeah. I really appreciate appreciated about it as a kid, but especially now as an adult is like the adults are keeping some secrets from Charlie, but they're not relying on him to do everything. Like, he has a part to play, and they outright tell him, you have a part to play in this. Mm -hmm. But they're not like, we're all depending on you. You need to be the only one to yeah. do this. Like, yeah. it is not a chosen one story. No. It is just, now you have responsibilities you didn't know that you were going to have. Mm -hmm. And you're a part of this. The adults talk to him about what's happening. Yes. Like, the fact that his mom sat down and had a chat about, like, you know, your your grandmother and aunts didn't want your father and I to get married, and this is why we're in this whole situation in the first place. So, we are financially beholden to this weird genealogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, like, oh. yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, like, the, the magic school isn't exactly, it's, like, the kind of place you kind of would want to see, but also wouldn't want to attend school, like, you know, with all these arbitrary rules. Yeah. It's not a because it's not a magic school. It is a no. prestigious uh high class art school that mm -hmm. also just happens to have one wing of it dedicated to magic kids. Yep. Yeah. We just happen which, to be there. Which what must it be like to be a teacher at Bloor's Academy? Like <laughs> you're you're fucking you're just like sitting at the at the breakfast table one day and you're just like, oh yeah. Hell yeah, we're gonna start the cubism unit today. We're gonna enjoy this. Like, we're really gonna get down and dirty into this cubism shit. And then one of the kids starts fighting with another kid, and just like energy blasts start flying out of the kid who's losing control of his temper because he's a 12 year old with magic powers. Or if someone like Charlie Bone, who can hear pictures, it just like comes up to you and you're like slightly hungover, like 28 year old school teacher, and Charlie's just like, Hey, I found you on Instagram. And you're like, oh, God. Shit. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Charlie with access to Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> found you on Instagram. And you're like, oh. Oh, man. Oh, God. There was something I was going to say actually kind of related to that. Oh, fucking Dr. Saltweather hating endowed kids. At least I think it was Dr. Saltweather. It was one of Charlie's teachers. Absolutely fucking hated all endowed kids and it actually kind of really yeah. stuck out to me that's one fold of this school that is important to touch upon is like the normal people just being like it's fucking this school is funded by like these weird families that have magic kids so they send all their fucking magic kids here and they're all weird and make everything really complicated for us i'm just trying to teach drama <laughs> yeah mr paltry Mr. Paltry didn't like endowed children. He made this very clear to Charlie. Endowed children were a waste of his time. They had their own uncommon talents, and they were of no use to anyone as far as Mr. Paltry could see. I had a teacher like this. She was my fourth grade teacher, uh, and she hated any kid who was in any, like, band or strings or uh, speech therapy or enrichment. She hated anyone who was out of her classroom for any amount of time that they theoretically should have been in there for because they were outside of her control then. And she was the teacher that first made me start emotionally eating. She introduced that to my life. So thank you very much. Wow. Golly. Hands down, worst teacher I have ever had. 
she gives all teachers a bad name. Her idea of an adequate uh, punishment for a child in fourth grade was detention until 6 p.m. So oh three hours of detention for a, for a, for a nine-year-old. How yeah, what is a nine-year-old going to like process three hours yeah. of? Uh, she at one point outright told me the wrong due date. She told me that a big project I had been working on that she paired me with the uh, like kid who never did anything in class. She paired me with him so I'd get a bad grade and then told me she had already graded it so I could take it apart before I left for uh, before I left for my enrichment class. And then I found out when I got back, oh, no, she hadn't already graded it. It's being graded in 10 minutes. Go do it all again. Uh, and it was our circuitry uh, project. So I had to rewire like a bunch of circuits in this little like dollhouse in 10 fucking minutes. After she told you to take it apart? Uh-huh. Miles, oh, you got to understand, it's not that I don't believe what you say, but like this is so cartoonishly villainous of a teacher in uh, the context of like the perspective of a child that of course we're dealing with this book. Everything is like villainy in the principal and the teachers and the, you know, weird aunts from the perspective of a child. It like, it makes me wonder though, like if this was something that you had thought about and believed like as a child was the reason behind your circumstances. And would you maybe like not have questioned that fully as an adult, I'm not. I'm not doing this intentionally to like gaslight or cast out, but it is oh. just. It's so hard for me to believe that a teacher like this would be so cartoonishly, like, seemingly like really out to get you. Oh no, she 100% had like several complaints filed against her by parents and fellow staff members. Okay. Wow. Yeah, my mom was a teacher with the district, so like I, I checked on that at one point because I was sobbing at the dinner table. Uh, dreading going back to school the next day and you knew me in school Jim. Yeah. you you know how much i liked learning and liked school um well it's just so yeah. i have heard other stories from people like on some other podcasts similar to this about just like cartoonishly like out to sabotage children and i'm just like maybe th this reflects on my like maybe naivete of disbelief of like why would somebody be like this it's easier to believe that you were misremembering something than that this woman would be this fucking crazy there are definitely teachers who go into education so that they have power over a room full of people and dan i'm sure you're about to say something more on that yeah i was gonna say there are i mean it's not as common in not to say you know it's a generational thing but i think in some ways it is that like there's a, there are some people who get into well a power struggle where you know, basically the kids are little pots of mischief waiting to boil over and they're trying to keep them from that. We're like, um, I had, uh, we had some recess aides in, uh, at the elementary school I worked at where they uh, forbade art on the playground solely because they said it, it takes too long to clean up and the kids aren't paying, atten paying attention to yeah, this and that. And I actually had to step in and say, this sounds like a bullshit reason to ban something and she essentially admitted yeah it is it's just more convenient for us to do this do it this way it's like so yeah some people just yeah and and i can understand like when you have a job and you especially with something that can be as stressful as kids like you do, yeah. <laughs> be like whatever you can do to make it like a little bit less work for you at the end of the day but when you're in an, an educational environment i can for sure see where you were dan but dan with that just about like yeah. give the kids the fucking chalk look like it's they they got to express their crap and the answer to that is that um 
there should be more funding to schools for, I don't know, custodial staff to clean shit up so that the teachers don't have to be burdened with it, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. That, that's I, what, it comes, oh, to, that's what it comes down to is like the capitalist limitations of the educational system. Is that um, in these systems of desperation and, of course, in a culture that engenders a feeling of powerlessness in people, they seek to, like, exert control in other realms. So mm -hmm. if yeah. if society were better and people were better taken care of, I think everyone would be more normal and nice. And that's mm -hmm. not a that's not a hard concept to construct. I would yes. hope so. Yeah. Um, building a better future. But, yeah, it's it's interesting, like, the how you know cartoonishly bad teachers in books sometimes have real <laughs> uh, corollaries in real life yeah miles do you gotta go I mean, you got like I, a cat busting up windows you know, or something uh just a cat chasing another cat but it's okay um no i actually had another fun moment like that in fifth grade where i was sick for a day and i came back and my teacher was angry with me because i hadn't done the homework she gave out the day i was sick and she made me fill out like an apology letter and part of and included on it was what will you do next time to ensure this doesn't happen again and this is going to sound fake because i was a sassier child than you generally would expect especially knowing me at this point but i just said i won't get sick <laughs> because, <laughs> there it is there it is so i guess and, i can um I so. guess I just will go to school when I'm dead. <laughs> I'll come to school when I'm sick, and that'll yeah, be okay, I'll, I guess. I, that's what they I, and that relates to adulthood. Be that, not productive. Yeah. And that relates to adulthood because that's the same situation you get put in a lot of times as an adult. Or just be like, yeah. well, I guess I'll come to work sick then. Get, and then they wonder why the whole the whole shift is sick. Yeah. yeah. But um, uh, if I may tack on more um, school horror stories. Um, when I was in childhood elementary trauma, elementary, childhood, childhood trauma. trauma. Yes. I mean, I what had... is podcasting if not a way to air your childhood trauma for <laughs> you know your friends and family who are yeah, the only truly, people who truly. are going to be listening to your podcast? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I had an IEP. I have a learning disability. I have I have a master's degree, but also a learning disability. Um, I, you know, I needed some accommodations, extra time, and note-taking help and stuff like that and my at an iep meeting a my fifth grade teacher told my mom i think we're doing enough for daniel in response to new accommodations that would help me well that didn't go over very well with my mother um then later than this year happens with the, the kid i work with and a teacher tells me yeah i'm not gonna make an individualized plan for your student that's on you so, hold on the it's parent not. yeah no no, no legally, uh, it's not like legally that's actually your job i can show you in the print because i too have this fucking degree but um yeah oh then we had an aide who told a kid during my student teaching adventures um we had a we had a lockdown drill which is totally normal in every other country right yeah charlie bone has lockdown drills right <laughs> oh my god he would have been though he would have <laughs> okay at the blurs academy maybe you get a laser shooting student who fucking knows <laughs> <laughs> but um we were in a lockdown drill and this one kid was acting up because he's you know he has some special needs and behavior issues the aide working with him tells him you keep doing this i'll throw you out in the hallway i'll throw you to the wolves to the to the hypothetical the school shooter say hey hey, hey dan um hmm 
Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I. I am glad I am on the other side of the country from that person, but I'm also not glad I'm on the other side of the country from that person. That person's cause... glad that you're on the opposite side of the country yeah, from yeah, them, really. or there would be a fucking beatdown. It was reported. Oh my it god. It was reported very much. Good. Yeah. It's only good if there is accountability, which institutionally, yep. who knows, it's a toss-up. That is fair. Uh, but speaking of, there could be laser shooting students. I kind of want to get a sort of feel of like we know a couple of the endowments. Do you guys have any ideas or just like random speculation about the abilities of any of the other endowed kids? Like, if you want to go by names because you don't remember the names, I do have them written down again. Oh like, yeah, this 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 could be a fun game. Hit me with a name, and we'll like just speculate on it. Okay, uh, Zelda Dobinsky. She has the power to see money through objects. She's got x-ray vision for money. Um, given she is... Okay, I'm going to assume that you don't remember how Zelda is described. Okay, wait, before this before this frames me as anti-Semitic, here's what I thought. I thought yep, Zelda, <laughs> Legend of Zelda, rupees, rupee coins. I was just thinking about like... It, it, it can't be that her superpower is video games. That that would I don't think that would have happened in this time period. Fuck! Did I dig a hole for myself? Didn't I? It's why I was assuming you didn't remember how she was described. But yeah, she was described oh. as having like very like no. narrow like narrow features and like I don't remember exactly what was said about her nose, but I remember Charlie Bone like making specific note of like her nose being a prominent feature and I, like... sw I swear to god i went video games rupees crystals money and i <laughs> and then i thought that would be a cool superpower to have as a kid is that you can see coins like through walls and then you I can get say... enough and then you can scrape together enough money in the couch cushions to go to the book fair i will say Fuck her, me, dude. her power her power is not anti-semitic uh okay nope i don't care if what her power is my concern <laughs> is that what i said is anti-semitic I know, I know, man, but that's that's why I'm assuming you didn't oh, remember, fuck, please. they didn't even say her last name, much less, like, very much about what she looked like. They just skimmed through a lot of the characters' descriptions. As soon as I said uh, that, and then I thought about Dubinsky, I thought, oh no, what have I done? Yeah, Dan, do you have a uh, random theory for what Zelda Dubinsky's power is? I thought it would be something like divination of some sort, mm. just because Zelda puts me in mind of, like, you know, mystical stuff. Okay. Uh, what about Dorcas Loom and Bindi Loom? They're cousins, and I'm going to say, right, it, they do basically have the same power. It's related to weaving and Dorcas threads, Loom so. and Bindi Loom. Uh, I don't know. They could, like, change the shape of clothes, like, do, like, telekinetic embroideries, stitchings. Uh, what's the word for it? Tailoring. Tele-tailoring. Tele-tailoring. Hmm. Tele that would be pretty neat. Um, that would be pretty neat. I kind of like that. Uh, what about Beth Strong? I will oh, say her last name. I I love Beth Strong's like characterization and background so Beth fucking Strong. much. She's only in like the first two or three books, but I love the detail that went into her character. Her last name is Strong because her family is is a family of strong men from circuses. I'm, I'm gonna say it's not just <laughs> gonna it's that. not just gonna it's not just gonna be strength, but it's gonna be like whatever the Juggernaut has, which is like momentum powers. 
or like the opposite of the juggernaut, which was the blob, I think, that they absorb momentum in a stationary way instead of juggernaut who projects momentum in like a velocity way. So I'm going to say that strong like cannot be pushed, essentially. I'm just going with straight like she just ha- she just happens to be really fucking strong. Oh, you know what? We should also say, do you think they're going to be antagonists or protagonists? Oh. Uh, Beth Strong, do you think protagonist or antagonist? Protagonist. She's going to be, she's ally. Roughly. All right. Zelda friend, Dabinsky? Friend or foe. Zelda, fen, friend or foe? Foe. Hmm. Uh, I thought friend. Dorcas Loom? I'm going to say both looms are going to be like ambivalent. Good. You know? Mm-hmm. They're going to be like uh, amicable to either side. Mm-hmm. Depends on like who uh, incentivizes them in certain ways. Our traded baby, Amelia Moon. Oh, um, Amelia Moon is the traded baby. Is that confirmed or is that just like their it's the projection? It's, it's the projected. Projection. She's, Amelia she's not Moon. Spoiling anything. Uh, absolute friend. Uh, maybe werewolf. Oh, that would be cool. I, hmm, I think something more subdued, just because a lot of these powers are kind of more subtle. Um. Maybe some future clairvoyance. There's some non subtle powers later on. <laughs> okay, good to know. Um, yeah, could be. Or heck, if it's not subtle, I don't know. Invisibility. Just, yeah, throw it's that good. one out. Mm-hmm. It's a good call. Amelia uh, Moon. Yeah. Asa Pike, the redheaded dude with the yellow eyes. Well, his oh, talent is in disguises. That's for fucking sure. I bet he <laughs> like can summon knives or something. <laughs> Asa, 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 or Asa, Asa, Asa. I think it was Asa. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I hear it, but I know we Americanize our Bible names. Or um, uh, Super Speed. Mm. Um, let's see, Lysander oh, also, Sage. Lysander Sage is that's also a werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> Lysander does sound like a werewolf name. I, hmm, you know what? I think maybe. Something telepathy related. I see. Oh no, he can talk to plants. Oh shoot, that'd be great. Oh, talking to plants. Oh, you. Uh, no, Miles gave the reaction where he closed his I eyes and goes, "Ooh, so I'm close." That one's close. Talking oh, to plants is close. close. Or it's that. just one I'd like to see. Well, then we should read Circle of Magic because one of the characters there does talk to plants. Um, He's and good. lastly, Tancred Torson. Uh, Lysander's tall, blonde-haired best friend with the spiky hair. Tancred Torson. He's maybe also got, like, some sort of... It's a physical thing, you know? He's either... He might have juggernaut powers, where he can just, like, run through walls. He can heat things up. Oh, okay. He's got some sort of, like, not fire powers, but heat powers. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Tancred is spelled T-A-N-C-R-E-D. In case you were thinking K. No. That doesn't change it for me. Okay. Only Uh, because I just read it. All right. These are all very interesting guesses. Uh, I'm excited to see sort of us revisiting this at another point. Speaking of which, Mystery Tracker, where we are. uh, Do you think Charlie is in the right ballpark with Amelia Moon being the kidnapped child? No, I think that's got to be a red herring. There's got to be another switch on that. Oh, for him to discover it this early, that is a good point. I liked I liked where I liked how he was coming to conclusions on things like like I said 
that was good. They're not like playing up an oblivious character trying to solve a mystery. But I think that assumption is going to come back to bite him in the same way that um, even uh, Manfred and his father, Headmaster Bloor, are so clearly framed as the villains right now. There's got to be another layer of complexity to that that will be revealed down the line where it won't be so cut and dry. Mm. Or maybe I'm doing the thing where I'm expecting like a more complicated adult narrative about this. I think... Um, all right, so this may be obvious already. But I think uh, the U-beams are some of the descendants that turned to wickedness. Yeah, they're the and evil half. they're running a lot more of this than we see. Mm. Uh, I got, I got that right. right away because they said in the prologue, the Red Kings, like, five of his kids were chill and five of his kids were evil. I'm like, the U-beams and maybe the entire Bloor Academy as an extension are an offshoot of, like, the evil lineage. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean I he's got the money to set way. up something that grandiose and, like, keep it running and keep all of that, like, crazy shit happening. Mm. It's the evil ones. The good ones don't have money. If the, evil, if the evil ones come about and what we've been dealing with is the good ones, the U-beams, then that's that's a darker morality spectrum <laughs> overall. Oh, yeah. The thing that's that's gray like, to black. The thing that I like about this series is that it doesn't have every member of a family just being evil for the virtue of being a part of that family. Uh, they do actually also say that the U-beams and the Bloors are connected. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that they're related, distant cousins. Yeah. Um, but, you know. but, like, so the U-beam ants are terrible, and Patton is good. Uh, actually, Dan, something about Patton stuck out to me that I want to mention. It doesn't have to do with this, but him being an author and saying, I'm writing a book. I might always be writing it. I thought yep. that would uh, probably mean something special to you. I felt that in my soul. <laughs> that was that was a great line. I'm writing a book. I've always been writing the book. I may always be writing the book. Yeah, that was that was a powerful bit. Yeah. It was. Um, okay, what about the mystery of Charlie's father? We we are fairly certain that he is alive. Mm-hmm. Who do you think he is, or do you think we have not met him yet? I think we have not met him yet. Same. Because he's of course alive, but this is going to play out over like a couple books, I think. Unless, as I may have expected, because this is the Children of the Red King books, and the rest of them are just like, uh, what what are are the, the, the titles of them are different as it goes on. Yeah, so it's Charlie um, Bone and the blank. Charlie Bone and um, the this and the that. But this one that starts out as Midnight for Charlie Bone. So this maybe thinks that this was a pilot episode that is its own self-contained story that they maybe didn't know would be picked up. And it did. So then you hmm. get like the Charlie Bone and the this, Charlie Bone and the that. But Midnight for Charlie Bone... Um, is a different framework. Yes, and none of the other books are just like the, you know, the, re- the Children of the Red King, colon... Hmm. Charlie and the number one, Charlie and the this, Charlie and the that. So maybe this will all be resolved. Maybe a lot of the mystery setup will be resolved sooner than expected. Like in this book, as though it was a singular book. I don't know. Well, we are like uh, 55 to 60% through it. So that if they were going to start like solving these mysteries right now, that would probably come really fast. Uh, so no, I'm going to, I'm going to say Charlie's father is going to be a lingering mystery throughout the series. Yes. My thought on this being potentially standalone is um, 
I know when it comes to middle grading young adult authors, they usually, they will, I don't know if they did this in the early 2000s, but I think they did. They'll like specifically book contractors, especially Scholastic, will ask specifically for a series. They'll go, okay, you have an idea for a book? No, 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 we want a whole series. Do you have a series? Okay, we'll green like this. Yeah. So, and, the con- and the contract is for like six to nine books. Yeah. Charlie Bone was originally contracted for uh, for five books, and then wow. that was increased to eight. Okay, okay. Uh, so the original, uh, which actually kind of makes sense to me, having read all of them, the fifth book does kind of wrap up a lot of plot points, and then book six introduces a lot more. So like, it makes sense that those are kind of like the two phases of the Charlie Bone plot to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that tells me a lot about how far some of these mysteries are going to stretch. And I imagine that the uh, legacy of the Red King and what his various descendants deal with probably at some point extend much further than the Bloor's Academy. Uh, the Bloor's Academy, I predict, is going to like stay around maybe through book four, and then the focus is going to shift on like a broader thing. Like, like maybe they'll go to a different country or something and solve some different mysteries. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I like that idea. I mean, book two, there's already time travel. Oh, shit. Well, that's well, that <laughs> that's opens up a, a lot of stuff. The name of the book is Charlie Bone and the Time Twister. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. that literally throws that is literally throwing continuity to the wind of yep. the Time Twister. I, I will oh. say I actually really like the way they had they had a time travel. They had a book with a central theme around time travel and they did it well oh good got any other mysteries for us before we sign off oh let's see who Uh, is mr mr onomouse's power is i think he's the red king if he is that's if he is that's really obvious yeah or he is one of the leopards in human form Wait, but then what are the cats? I don't know. Sub leopards. That, that was my early thought. Then, then I saw Manfred or Red Manfred say something about them being around for nine hundred years. Like, okay, they are the leopards. So I don't know. If he is the Red King and his sort of thing is like behind the scenes machinations, that's that is a good concept. Um, and I'd like to see how Can't that the family drama. I'd like to see how he keeps like he's an immortal dude who keeps poking his head in for his like great 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 grandchildren's uh petty dramas and intrigue. Um that sounds chill. If it is, of course, that's a reveal. I'm like, okay, so it wasn't hidden. It was not a secret, it was not a mystery, it was extremely uh front and center the whole time. I mean, some of the best mysteries are so obvious you would think that they would be something else. He's doing hidden in plain sight. So we, the reader, got the prologue of the Red King. But I don't know. Does what if nobody else in this universe like really knows that about the Red King and the three cats? So mm-hmm. if everyone else in the universe, if that's sort of lost to history uh, in the fiction, then I could give people a pass for being like, "Who the fuck is this dude with his three colorful cats?" Because nobody knows uh, oh, that he is you, that, that guy, the Red King. Uh, I mean, I think it's fairly easy to assume that there are going to be more endowed children introduced at another point. Uh, but do you think there are any characters we've already met, uh, students or faculty or like random adults, who are endowed? I think, what's her name? Um, Ingledew might be. 
I was thinking her husband, Tolly, like whoever that inventor was, he had some he had some power. Uh, brother-in-law. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was secret. Exactly. He was involved with that somehow because he's he did we didn't even touch on him that much, but he did like some weird he was making robots. He had a Yeah. He had he, skeletons in his closet, literally. He Yeah, he was he was making a lot of robots. Technically those skeletons were in Bloor's closet. Okay. Wow. Bloor had all of Tolly's robots and was busting them apart looking for whatever secret Tolly hid, which is like either in the case or in the dog robot. Yeah, I wonder where it is. <laughs> yeah, it's somewhere. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think, uh, I wouldn't say like Benjamin is like secretly endowed and his power is like attracting misfortune and, <laughs> you know, socioeconomic <laughs> pressures onto him and all of his family. I... I am really going to track this time Charlie's mom uh, Charlie's mom being like weirdly precognitive because I this time around am a little bit convinced that she might be endowed the to bring it back to Charlie's mom for a second we talked about this a little earlier and I want to end the podcast on this is like how interesting it is to revisit this from adult sensibilities and see the different perspectives where uh so much of the framing of this is child perspective in the way that you know your some of your older relatives are the villains and like your principal and your teachers are like obstacles for you in the same way that I always think about um whatever this like child worldview of combativeness of the forces around you being against you was like perfectly crystallized in the kids next door cartoon where every like challenge discomfort and displeasure of childhood is represented by some character some like villainous character and how that and how the media projects an inherent conflict between the child and the adult world and being on the opposite side of that after living our whole lives, like seeing the adult world as uh, our enemy, now you're on the adult side of it and you can analyze just how much of the adult world is just inherently leveraged to interfere with and fuck up a child's life. As we talk about uh, Charlie being so heavily institutionalized. Um, but also, yeah, just seeing more of the adults' perspectives in their more complex, like, anxieties especially in charlie's mom it's it's so strong um yeah. which this all just like validates the fact that we're doing this project of going back to these books as yeah. grown men um to i don't um, know see the other side of the child media divide yeah yeah i speaking of oh sorry no there was something that Patton said that i i highlight i highlighted it and i couldn't remember where it was and i just found it again um it was when he was going back to Ingledew's to get the keys, and Patton just said, an adult should be on hand, don't you agree? Like, yes. Yes, I do. In so many instances, this this boy is a child. Yeah. You, you're so gonna let him walk around town, this little ten-year-old, by himself, in a town you know where, where there's a family that loves snatching kids? <laughs> like, of course you're not gonna let him do that. It's really be keeping a better eye on him. We are also of our generation living on the opposite side of the latchkey helicopter divide. Yeah. Um, yeah this is true. Especially, where, you know, some small town in Wales in the early 2000s probably yeah. seemed pretty safe. So it's it's just so different. Yeah. Um, oh, um, 
Dan, there was something that stuck out to me that I um, I forgot about. I'm going through my notes now just to make sure there's nothing I missed. And uh, when Fidelio first met Charlie, something kind of stood out to me. It like it like kind of hit that bit in the back of my brain that was like, yeah, I think Fidelio might be on the spectrum. I could see it. Like, um, but what uh, about? Hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm following. Yeah, he like. I don't remember exactly what, like, he, he doesn't fully, like, I don't know. It, it's, it is clear to me on his introduction that he, he understands the emotion and everything of everyone else, but he doesn't quite grasp the, like, social and conveying of that emotional language side of things, exactly. And, like, it's tried to say yeah. that he's like he's off in his own world, but he yeah. is not so affected by the mood of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. just—it's something that I'm going to be looking into more as we read through the series more. But like, yeah, I wanted to get your read your read on it yeah. too, because I mean, back over it and maybe look at it that way because that's interesting. And I don't know if it's intentional. Like that was one of two things I really considered like tweeting at Jenny Nemo and being like, Hey, Patton's super gay coded. Did you intend for this? And also is Fidelio meant to be on the spectrum or am I reading too much into things? But I feel like she would probably just be like, Oh, you know, well, if that's, if that's something that like helps you relate to the characters more, I don't see why not. Yeah. Oh, I'm choosing to believe that she is a nice considerate person oh i do so love when uh the the readers of my books like can learn something about themselves and the world around them even if i didn't think of that while writing it it's a lovely way for people to explore their own lives um because (laughs) at one point she like messed up in one of her books and she like gave a character the wrong eye color or something i don't remember what it was like a minor but noticeable uh mistake and someone asked her about it and she did the thing that i always respect from authors and she said oops my bad. I I must have made that mistake and it made it it made it past my uh it made it past my my read through when I was editing it. Oops. Uh like when someone asked Pobody's um, nerfect. Um oh it was Philip Pullman who wrote his dark materials, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when someone asked him, "Hey, why doesn't the golden monkeys why why don't they ever say the golden monkeys uh the golden monkey demon's name?" He's just like, "I never said its name." <laughs> Oh, like, I never gave it a name. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Three whole books later. Oh, well. Like, yeah. no. Oh, it, well, I mean, of course, Mrs. Coulter wouldn't say its name. It's She hates it, and it's not relevant to Lyra's journey. It's like, no, I just forgot to name it. <laughs> <laughs> and he would be, like, at the panel of some, like, Ursula K. Le Guin Memorial uh, book conference or whatever, and he's like, oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> But that that is something that I always appreciate and I feel like tells me a lot about an author's like philosophy on their own writing where it's like they're able to admit their own mistakes and you know are are comfortable saying in a large group of fans hey I'm not a perfect person and these books aren't perfect either. Yeah, I you're like I just, oh I guess that I just I just have a lot of respect for that from my YA authors for some reason. Yeah. They're just like, yeah, that one uh, slipped through the, uh, whatchamacallit, editing. Yeah. 
one of my friends once said they appreciate the fact that Philip Pullman wrote his series and, you know, he picked it back up, but he didn't feel the need to expand and expound on every little detail. He's just like, I felt like writing again. So here we are. Oh, uh, yeah. uh, other mystery. Who do you think Patton is sending all of those letters to and why? Uh, his boyfriend and because <laughs> lonely. <laughs> yes. Um, I think he knows where the fa- where Charlie's father is. I'm making this one up on the spot. I think, yeah, I'm just going to go for a wild guess. That's who he's sending letters to. And he's sending those letters and be like, uh, yeah, he got it. And he gets a letter <laughs> back and they're like, whoa, what do you got? And he'd be like, eh, he listens to pictures. <laughs> oh, and Charlie's dad's pictures all being taken from their house. That was important. No Charlie's dad pictures so that you can't hear him. And Charlie was just like, well, why would they do that if they didn't know I had this power? And the mom was just like, I don't know, they guessed or something. And me reading, I'm just like, I don't know about all that. That doesn't really check out for me. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you think they took those pictures? Oh, because he can't see his dad or he would recognize him. But why doesn't the mom recognize that the uncle that lives in their house is her former love man? If it's Patton. Yeah. If it's Patton, why was does the mom ever see Uncle Patton? I don't know. Yeah, they the seem mom to... sees Uncle Patton. Yeah, they've been in the same room. Okay. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I think they hmm. have said that Uncle Patton... Uh, Charlie's mom is like the one other person in the house Uncle Patton even remotely gets along with. Even okay, so we they can don't say see each other often. So we can say it's not Uncle Patton, but somebody else that Charlie may see he wouldn't recognize as being his dad because he's never seen the picture. Right. Maybe that could be fucking anonymous. It could be anonymous. It could be Pilgrim. Yeah, either of those are like easy guesses, but it is yeah. just like. Yeah, did, didn't Pilgrim like react a certain way to see Charlie there? Like maybe he like, you know, caught the whiff. Or whatever. Uh, he so Pilgrim did react a certain way. Uh, I have it highlighted. Um, I am like trying to specifically not give you Miles, any okay. Okay, so Pilgrim. So Pilgrim is dad. his fucking dad. No, I'm saying that there are clues for a lot of different people. Yeah, you're being pretty cagey uh, overall. But they also outright said in clues at last that uh, Pilgrim has been acting differently since Charlie arrived. That was a part of the summary. It was something that I already said. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I okay. I am not giving any new information. I am literally just saying like, yeah. I'm in just in that. I am surprised this is the first time you've mentioned it could be Pilgrim. Because well, I thought... he is another one of those like possible candidates that they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Okay. okay. Um. If there's I like all the thoughts with Mister Animas too, because I I as a kid was just like who is this man who is mr on a mouse this mysterious and I had both of those thoughts i thought he could be charlie's dad or i thought he could be the red king this mysterious uh exterminator whose methodology of extermination is to let his magic cats just collect corpses and just bust his way into everyone's house no matter what sometimes he's just like hello i mean i'm the exterminator and he walks in so there's at least some pretext of why he should be in the house but at some point i think he just breaks into benjamin's place and like they move shit around so that the ant doesn't find the secret bomb i also at one point thought he was asa pike's dad yeah sure um, yeah, we're running. Through, we're getting on a lot of time here, so I think we got to wrap yeah, up. The, the oh, go- um, there was one thing I wanted to say. Go. I'm oh, sorry, mm-hmm. there was interruption. Um, was just on because Miles, you asked about what I would think of the writing style, and yeah. just, at least from a craft standpoint, like you know, it's a middle grade 
novel. It's it's you know fewer words spread out on the page, larger type. But like she she's really good at what you call word economy, where you get a lot from a little. Hmm. Like she's able to build like that whole scene where the ants are, are walking up are walking down the street and Benjamin's watching them. Like you feel the tension. Like there's not a whole lot of words there. It's like yeah, you she's really good at um crafting this whole world and emotions and everything with you know light touches and small yeah yeah absolutely um oh i had something but i just forgot it um (laughs) there was there was a really big point that i thought was just really really beautifully written it was when charlie first saw um uncle Patton's uh power and Oh, and of course, I can't find it now. It's okay. You go look for it. I'm going to do a little uh, outro. Maybe that can be an exit for us. Um, But this has been the Honor Book Fair podcast inaugural episode. Uh, I'm Jamie. I've been here with uh, Miles and Dan as we discuss the first half of the first Children of the Red King book, Midnight for Charlie Bone. Uh, The good news is we had a lot to talk about, which means our chemistry is solid and the content is rich. So I don't care how long the podcast ends up being uh, because we you know, just have plenty to talk about. Maybe in the future, we could imagine these Charlie Bone books or any other books as being like a, uh, maybe uh, a th- we, we, what we did is a half of the books. Maybe we could consider a third of the books or a quarter uh, for shorter evenings, but it's been uh, excellent so far. And um, you can follow us on any of the major like podcasting apps or whatever. I'll have it uploaded through Anchor to all distribution networks, uh, even on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Play, whatnot. And um uh gosh keep following we're gonna keep talking about charlie bone and uh maybe some other books in the future i don't know if we would run through like all eight charlie bone books over the course of like five months or something on this podcast because that maybe seems like just a lot of charlie bone maybe we would try to mix it up here and there uh who knows we'll see how this uh turns out in terms of reception but in terms of performance of it we've had a fantastic time talking um so that bodes well for the future um, do you guys have any social media or something to be followed on? I don't. Um, I got I got off of Twitter and everything recently, so I don't I don't care anymore. I mean, nothing that will probably be relevant because Dang. realistically, I'm probably not going to be tweeting about Charlie Bone very much. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, Twitter is a hellscape anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not at the moment for me. How about uh, instead of following us on Twitter, go follow your local library with a card that you can get for free. Yeah. Yeah. Having fun isn't hard when you have a library card. Yeah. Also, if you do like this book, uh, follow at Jenny Nemo one, J E N N Y N I M M O one. She just mostly talks about like retweeting people who were talking about how much they like her books, including at one point she retweeted a picture of, some kids who ha- went to their school's Halloween celebration dressed oh. as uh, Olivia Vertigo, and it was so fucking cute. I don't know if maybe just, people just listening nice to our podcast grandma. should be reaching out to her on Twitter because they'll be like, oh, listen to this podcast <laughs> right. where grown adults are cussing Leave her alone. about Leave your her books. Alone. Never mind. Yep. Leave her alone. Don't. Do not interact. Don't interact Simply, with Jenny Nemo on Twitter. She seems okay. She's got her own. She's got a good thing going on. She doesn't need to listen to us. Uh, be dingbats all over her cherished children's book series. 
Yeah, just enjoy her posting petitions for saving local Welsh wildlife. Just enjoy yeah. that. That's fine. Oh, she's perfect. There's no like, <laughs> there's no the significant problematic uh, social media presence to this uh, UK-based children's fantasy author. So just, Please just don't tell her so, we exist. <laughs> so just appreciate that someone like that is on Twitter not being awful. Yeah, she doesn't even have a banner image on her page. That's how little she uses oh Twitter. Oh my god, what, what are you, my grandma? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, thank you, everybody. That's the end of the podcast. Final words from my co-hosts. Um, ooh, in closing, who's everyone's favorite character right now? It's Benjamin. Lo love this, love this sad little, sad little <laughs> bastard. Mine is definitely between Benjamin and Patton. Yeah, I was going to say between um, Benjamin and um, I don't know, maybe Fidelio. Mm. Fidelio is chill. cool. Yeah. I, I, I do I like get a really good appreciation for Lysander and uh, Tancred later on, too. Oh, good. I, I look forward to liking all of them or disliking them as we complete. Yeah. There is a lot of shonen DNA to this, you know, where like once you get to the school, it expands into all of these fancifully named new people with their mysterious powers to start figuring out. Mm -hmm. I would watch an I, I would watch anything, any piece of visual media of this. Same. Hint, hint. Apparently, apparently here's, here's a transition. Here's a transition card. Seven years later, and uh, our podcast uh, gains enough like clout or whatever to like in association with Jenny Nemo and Netflix begin producing the first season of the Children of the Red King anime series. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I mean, dream. That's, uh, that's not a bit of dream. That's more stable employment than I currently have. That's enough of the podcast. We're done with it. I'm stopping recording yeah. now. Okay. All right. Good job.